Hello world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. We're so thrilled to be back here with you. Uh, as always, this is Alex, coming to you from St. Louis, joined by my two usual illustrious co-hosts, the first of which is Cody from Illinois. Um, Co- Actually, let me reverse the order real quick, because there's a reason for this. So, first this week is Jack John coming to us from Indianapolis. Jack John, how are you this week? I'm doing pretty great. I've... Spent the last couple of days heavily researching my topic, and, it, and it's got me in a mindset that has me excited and jittery for this week's episode. <laughs> and and more on why you say that in a bit. Um, but also, we have Cody to- coming to us from Illinois, and the reason I'm having uh, Cody go last in the introductions this week is because we're told um, that Cody had another uh, classic, strange Cody interaction today. Um so, Cody, how are you? I'm good. Um, and I will say that this experience was not an interaction, really. It's more just something that I saw. I see. But it was still very strange. So, I'm driving home from work, and I'm noticing that a lot of these experiences tend to happen on my way home from work. But So, I'm driving home from work, and I'm in traffic, and I'm sitting at a red light, And there is someone who is clearly out for a run. Like, I see him run up the sidewalk, up to the crosswalk. And when he gets there, he does not yet have the clear to go. So he does what some runners will do and starts running in place. Mm -hmm. Just, I guess, to keep the pace or keep the steps. I've never understood that. I don't run unless something is chasing (laughs) me. But. And even then, probably. This guy. This guy, and I had never seen anyone do this before, but instead of just running in place, he decided to get creative with it. I I don't know if he just got bored after a minute, but instead of just running in place, he started like going side to side like a crab and then back and forth. (laughs) And eventually at one point he just stopped using his arms. So he's literally sitting out there and it looks remarkably like the river dance that he's out there doing, just waiting to cross in traffic. So it's like and a, it, eventually it's like a little like Snoopy thing that he's doing. Yeah. It's it's very odd. But anyway, eventually the uh he gets the all clear and just starts running across the road and I was I, I got home and I was thinking about this because you can't see that and not think about it for a while. And you, I'm thinking about this and I'm I'm like, you, you know, or go ahead, Jack John. You didn't see somebody running. You saw a one man flash mob. Basically, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I was just thinking, you know, I, I am not really what most people consider a self-conscious person. Uh, most people who know me will tell you there are very few things in this world I care less about than what the general public thinks of me. But even still, I think if I were this guy, knowing that I had just done this in rush hour traffic in a reasonable sized town... I think I would have to spend the rest of the night going, I wonder if those people all think I'm crazy now. <laughs> like, not that it matters, but I wonder if those people all think I'm totally nuts. And maybe he is. I don't know. It takes a certain kind of person to be a recreational runner. Um, so he's probably already crazy and does not give a shit. Well, and recreationally running in in place, I guess. Yes. The type of runner that runs for no reason, but also jogs in place the entire time when they have to stop. Like, 
No, this is nature's way of telling you to take a break, dude. I'll be a psycho. Yeah, it's interesting. So anyway, that's what happened to me. I, It's interesting that, yeah, I, I feel like there should be a balance. Like, all in all, people, some people are too self-conscious. Like, you cannot be overly worried about what the world thinks of you. Because, you know, that's really not a good evaluation of, of how you're doing as a person. On the other hand, like, people should have some shame i think yeah. <laughs> that's a good protect what what this guy was doing i think is fine because i mean in theory i can't pick out anything per se wrong with it other than it's strange but a counter example would be like remember a couple of years ago when that video came out of like james corden for his show oh like he God. and a bunch of he and a bunch of like oh. the other people from his show like ran out into traffic and did like a flash mob wearing like animal jumpers I think you gotta have enough shame to not do shit like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, you, you I mean, can't be going around doing there, that. You, you have to have some amount of shame just to function in society. Like yeah. shame is why we started putting doors on bathrooms. Like yeah. sometimes it's just necessary. <laughs> you, you you cannot but, be shameless to the point that you're inconveniencing people. You know. Yes. Because if I if I was sitting in traffic, because I hate sitting in traffic as it is, I hate sitting at, at red lights. It just annoys the shit out of me. If yeah. I saw, especially James Corden, like if I saw yeah. anybody running out into the street and doing this, like I'm not going to run them over. If it's James Corden, <laughs> I will think about it, but probably still won't. James Corden, if it's Corden, I'm just going to get out of my car and beat the bejesus out of him in, front, in the middle of traffic, <laughs> but I'm not going to kill him. This is the only if, chance I'm ever going to have to do this and it be justified, you know? If, if, yeah. if James Corden's in front of my car and I'm stopped at a stoplight, I don't accelerate over him, but I definitely take my foot off the brake and I let the car roll him over slowly. Yeah. <laughs> Enemy of the podcast, James Corden. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, uh, we've all expressed our desire to see him dead. Yeah, he's, he's a bit of a lesser enemy of the show in the sense that I don't know that he's, like, e evil like a lot of the other enemies of the show. His <laughs> his crime is being incredibly corny. Um, yeah. No, I, I put him up there with, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Like, people that aren't... Or or the, the, the aforementioned Ken Jeong would be the same way. Yeah. Yes. Pe people that aren't necessarily like morally reprehensible but they are incredibly annoying yeah <laughs> yeah and that's like which is a, a bigger crime and that's like yeah okay i i just realized this if someone murders james corden in like two weeks we're gonna look <laughs> really bad if he gets run over we're all on a list immediately <laughs> and getting questioned well look you know you win some you lose some uh -huh. So, sir, there is a bloody, pudgy British dent in your car. Care to explain <laughs> that? Um, if that could have been anyone's smug face on my windshield, you've got nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, that, so that's what you, you've had going on this week. Um, so, something I've had going on this week, if you follow the Twitter account, you may have seen this. Um, uh, I'll, I'll do a quick plug here. A couple weeks ago, I did get the show added to Google Podcasts. Um, so that's one alternative to Spotify that we have up. There's Google Podcasts, there's Stitcher. Um, a project of mine is to add us to a few more platforms uh, just to give just to give everyone as many alternatives because, I mean, I know people listen to podcasts on different things. So, But kind of a neat thing about after I added the show to Google Podcasts is um, 
you know, some of the data it collects. One feature in particular that I enjoy quite a bit is a feature called top search terms. And the way that it explains what top search terms are is these are the top phrases searched for that showed playable links for your podcast in Google search. So, you know, to better explain this, it's like it shows me phrases that people have searched for that at some point in the Google results will include a link to either the show itself or to an episode of our show. And the results are truly fascinating. For one, just to see what everyone's searching out there. This is shit that you just never want to know. But now I know. <laughs> Let alone things that are pulling up links to our show. And um, Yeah, we're not putting that genie back in the bottle. <laughs> and I will, I will give you all a hint. Uh, none of them are for the show itself. <laughs> so um, I, I would like to run through. There's about 40-ish. I probably won't, I probably won't mention all of them. But I, I want to run through a bunch of them. And uh, uh, I know you two have seen some of them, and, and um, maybe maybe get some thoughts. So feel free to jump in at any point in any of this. Um, so here are the things people are searching on Google that are are pulling up links for our show. There are nine terms that people have searched. Um, either they've searched twice, or it's pulled up two links. Okay. The first D and D burglars pack. Okay. Okay, understandable. That's a guess. normal Google search. That's a normal search if you're playing. I bet that D&D. was that was probably Pookie. Yeah. <laughs> um, more on him in a second. Um, term two: Fillmore dentist. Okay. Okay. Right. One of my guys was a dentist. So and uh, that's, uh, that is a very that is a very funny name for a dentist, by the way. <laughs> I think um, there was an episode where we we talked some shit about the conservative comic strip Mallard Fillmore, and it may have made its way into an episode description. So that's probably where those two and all, yeah, yeah, it definitely did. And I think that was the same episode uh, where Jack talked about his uh, berserker dentist. <laughs> Pookie believes... So that happened totally on accident. That wasn't even somebody making a joke. That's really funny how that happened. Pookie believes in Santa Claus. Now, did either of the two of you do this one? Because this one wasn't here the other day. (laughs) No. I don't think so. Um, That's weird even for it like that. If that were an inside joke, maybe, but... What? I've never heard that before. Um, So, yeah, that, that one's happened twice. Um, Rob Mallard. Well, next time we'll have to ask him to settle this for, for whoever (laughs) keeps asking. Rob Mallard illness. Ski holidays, St. Johan. Huh? Now, can you imagine like trying to like Google details to plan like a nice vacation to your family and getting our fucking show instead and it's got like the very phallic Christmas episode yeah. pops up, and they're like, "Well, maybe there's some like vacation hints in here or something." And it's just hey, Janice, I found something just uh, just wonderful for us and the kiddos to listen to on the way to our uh, Saint Johan ski vacation. Yeah, the Johan. This will be from... peachy keen, guys. The Johan comes from the name of of Johan Conrad Dippel, the inspiration for Doctor Frankenstein, who we discussed in the episode Frankenstein's Landlord. But that's uh, that one's a tenuous one, I think. <laughs> I'm not going to complain yeah. about Google popping up links for our show, but come on. Um, all right, here's a good one: Sport Durst motorcycle. 
that's one where I question what the search was intended to be. You know? Yeah. Have we? If, have we? You, if, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Fred Durst none of those things starts, go together. If Frender server starts BMXing, we're gonna hit it big. <laughs> we have never talked about Fred Durst on the show, but we did talk about Robert Durst briefly. I think that's where that's going gotta to. be it. Yeah. Um, here's another one. This was this was one of the 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 really good ones. Sweaty Betty time trial shorts. There's, we I have some no real, fucking clue what that could possibly be. We got some real sick puppies out there. <laughs> Who that searches just sounds for like porn? It, it, that might have been what they were looking for. Sweaty <laughs> Betty time trial shorts. It's a horrible I don't know product. What kind of? I don't know what kind of porn that would bring up, but nothing I want to see. I, I'd say what though, if if anyone's an aspiring uh, adult film star and they're looking for their poor name, Sweaty Betty has got to be the top name on your list. <laughs> Here's one. Uh, Zany Zoo. Sounds awesome. I'm sure you've described the St. Louis Zoo as Zany in an episode description. I've described an episode just... as Zany, and I have mentioned the zoo. I don't know if it was the same. I, I just hope... Um... That that was somebody actually trying to find a zany zoo. <laughs> it's like I want to go to the zoo, but oh. I don't want it to be like a serious zoo. I'll tell you, I want it to be wacky. I'll tell you a zany zoo thing. Um, Cody, you heard me yeah. tell this story over the weekend. I randomly, I had two different friends who don't know each other both witnessed this event at the zoo. Oh god, two weekends ago at the this, same time. Yeah. One of them was nice enough to take video of the event. Both were there with their small children who are, who are too little to remember any of it, thankfully. Um, they were at the chimp exhibit. And oh. unfortunately, a raccoon had gotten into the chimp exhibit. Oh, which fuck. might be okay in other times, but if you haven't been to the St. Louis Zoo recently, they, there's a baby chimp, which is adorable. But it means that the, the adults are a bit on edge and protective. <laughs> And my, one of my, my friends showed me the video and um doesn't go well for the raccoon. Um, they like surround it in the brush and it gets away for a second. Then one of the chimps runs it down, hammer fists it once. You see just in the brush, you see a raccoon go flying, spinning up into the air, falling back into the brush. And then the next thing you see is one of the chimps pick the raccoon up by the tail and I shit you not hurls it like 15 feet against the rock wall of the enclosure. It was, it was insane. (laughs) And, uh, we don't know what happened after that. The chimps got summoned (laughs) away by the keep. The keepers got there at that point. I'm just, I'm just imagining that like for the next two weeks, there's going to be a chimp wearing a coonskin cap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, Zany's like a little the... like a little Simeon Davy Crockett. I was gonna say Monkey Crockett, but yes. You never know what you're gonna see at the zoo. Um <laughs> so two person cheer stunts. Um Alex Cole Probably... uh, Alex Cole a fucking conversation. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um see Arthur Court horse pitcher. There's a lot of sounds like a weird episode title we could have had. Here's one, and and Cody, I'm sorry, um, but this this is just one that's on here. Brandon Cody, gay fuck. I saw that on the uh, the Twitter, and I'm like, all right, so 
I know what you were searching for. <laughs> Why does that bring up a link to our podcast? Well, imagine listen, we'll, we'll take the listeners some, where we can get them, you know. Imagine looking <laughs> for some like nice, quality Brandon Cody fucking and being so disappointed at getting us three. Here's a guy, a wonderful, yeah. a wonderful listen for your post-nut clarity. <laughs> um, it's the boner-killing podcast. It just just shuts the whole thing down immediately. Officially branded as the boner-killing podcast now. See, yeah, sure, why not? Cyborg Six Best Flags podcast on Spotify didn't work too well. Cyborg Six Flags New England. All right. D&D Large Luigi. <laughs> Why the fuck would you... Oh, my God. I can't believe we're just hearing this after I already gave my current D&D character a name. <laughs> You're just literal Luigi, but just like two and a half times larger. <laughs> I am a large Luigi. This was one of my favorites. Doofus Rick. Yeah. Just an so that's a Rick thing. and Morty reference, but yes. like, how does that <laughs> how does that bring us to the podcast? Um, Empress moth, which is just a species of moth. I, I don't know why that. Um, fucking Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs is I listening love, to our podcast. I love that these are just mashing two episodes together because I I did the Empress. Uh, a couple episodes ago, and Mitch did Mothman like yeah. three months ago. Yeah. So it's just yeah. mashing all of your words together. Episode ten, Moth in the City. Yes. Um, here, but okay, so that's those are a little easier to understand. This one though, every time you twist a nut, think of Hitler. What? I mean, I already do for one, but what? Why would you type that into Google? Yeah, that's just like a general like. What 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 was what were they hoping to get? <laughs> you know, that almost sounds like a classic viral tweet or something. But I, <laughs> I have never heard of it. Yeah, Alex, who was the guy that you had that just had the most insane Twitter, uh, like three AM post? That's his tweet. Oh, um, like Will Hill. <laughs> yes, it's Will, that's Hill. Will Hill's tweet. Um, well, or or Jerry Judy with his Big Bird. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Big Bird sequence. Here's a. Here's one that I, I thought was really funny. Fear of Dentist, New Philadelphia, Ohio. <laughs> there, there's a lot of dentist ones, but that one's the only one that says fear of dentist. I mean, I understand fear of dentist, but why did you need to narrow it down geographically? <laughs> Look, I hate dentists and I hate Ohio. Do not give me a dentist in Ohio. I have a fear for that. <laughs> I just pass out immediately. There, here's a couple that are that are kind of um, similar. Gifts for jigsaw puzzle enthusiasts, and also Indianapolis Colts Christmas gifts are leading to links okay. to our show, I guess. So, I, so I can... first and foremost, if you need gift suggestions for a jigsaw puzzle enthusiast, you're an idiot. Get him a jigsaw <laughs> yeah. puzzle. That one's pretty yeah. self-explanatory. And, uh, and for the <laughs> second one, how fucking can... hard is that? If you're looking for a gift for an Indianapolis Colts fan, the answer is bourbon. It yeah. is a shitload of it. Doesn't have to be good bourbon. A just better bourbon. Quarterback. Yes. A quarterback under 35, please. Um Grinch puns. That one's okay. probably not terrible. You know, we're probably a decent yeah, source no, for I that. Kind see of that. Thing. It's something Alex has actually Googled before. If you like. Now, there is one later that is, it wasn't my search, but it is one that I have searched the exact term of, and we'll get to it. Um, 
hold on. I was going to, um, there's one that it's, there's several that are related to Killjoy the Clown, which, uh, oh. references the 2000 horror movies, uh, Killjoy, which, uh, has a 2.6 out of 10 rating on IMDb. So they, they looked for Killjoy the Clown and found a, a form of entertainment that is, uh, only slightly better. We've got like a 2.8. <clears throat> <laughs> Here's another good one. Moo Moo Cow. Well, well, well yeah. <laughs> That's a good Did idea for a search. Imagine again. Yeah, imagine a cow wearing a moo moo. That sounds adorable. And punny. Yeah. I'm guessing that's what this person was trying to find is a yeah. picture of a cow wearing a moo moo. Because yeah. I want to see that too. Actually, I'm going to look that up. As a matter of fact, I will probably search that when I get bored later in this episode. But, uh, um, uh, Nelly American Girl doll story. Imagine the disappointment I when they did... came on your fucking haunted dolls. <laughs> Looking for like yeah, a nice, did, wholesome. Um... Well, did, um,. Did they do an American Girl doll that was kind of based on Nellie Bly, though? Maybe that's what that is. Maybe. I don't know. Or the rapper. Yeah, I was going to say, I have no idea, but it sounds like something they do. Here's a good one. Uh, Pablo Sandoval baseball reference. And what I like about that is that clearly that came up because of our episode with John Fleming. John Fleming could have searched that. (laughs) No, that's the kind of thing he would (laughs) search. Yeah, he very well could have. Um. I mean, I spend, I also, like I suspect John probably also does, I do spend a, like, concerning amount of my day looking stuff up on Baseball Reference during yeah. baseball season, so. My version of that is I, I spend all that time on fan graphs, but it's it's kind of the same thing. Right. Um, Mine is Googling Marlins record and then looking at the last 10 games they've played, crying, and then closing <laughs> Google. <laughs> it do be like that, yeah. Um, Rude Jigsaw Puzzle. So like is is it like profane or is it a puzzle that talks and says dickish things to you? I don't know. I don't know. I I like that we're quartering the market for puzzle people. I think that's a, a an untapped potential for us to to really speak to puzzle enthusiasts. It's a niche market, you might say. <laughs> this is another one of my favorites. The search term is simply shithead in spanish part of what i like about that one so much is that instead of like even trying just google translate you're just going straight you're googling it you don't google you don't go to translate you don't google what is the word for shithead in spanish you just shithead in spanish and somehow that brought us to our fucking show (laughs) yeah i again not sure where that would have who knows Google Translate's going to give you the literal, like, one you want, like, the slang, and, and that's where that's where you go to the direct search. Um, okay, here's the one that I have done this exact search at some point in my life, but that's not what this one was. Soldier holding camel spider. You know the, you know the picture I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. yeah I've, seen, I've seen that picture a million times. It wound up being, like, a hoax picture. The, it's, it was, it, like, it was two spiders. Yeah, it's fake. Yeah. yeah. It's still a fucking big spider, but it's it's yeah. it's two of them rather than rather than yeah. uh, rather than one because it, it, holding it up it makes it look like the biggest spider of all time. But I have looked for that image. Apparently now when you Google search for that image, you get links to our show. Which you know what? Fair cool. enough. Oh, I think it's in yeah. the spirit. This one though, I'm less sure. Uh, Steve Mason gay wrestling. What is that? 
Do any of you know what know. that is? Do I want to know what, what that is? What is it that what is it that makes the wrestling gay? First of all, if you have watched professional wrestling, already kind of gay. It's yeah. a, like it's, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's incredibly gay. It's camp. It's, it's yeah. one of my favorite old jokes of all time, and it was like, name something gayer than two oiled half naked men fighting over a belt. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, uh, it's that's, um, that's what's so fun about wrestling. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's so campy. Yeah, it's. So what? What exactly? I'm wondering what gay wrestling would be. Just um, remove the trunks, and it's the exact same thing. So like, like they did in the ancient Greeks, yeah. Yeah, the Greeks were incredibly gay and wrestled. So yeah, that tracks. they were. Yes, they really were. <laughs> the Greeks would just kind of fuck whatever. Like that's also true. whatever was around. Um, a couple more, Varg Vikernes books. And um, okay, I usually don't say this, but I, I, I hope whoever I, I looked for that I, is being monitored. Yeah, I I thought I was pretty clear during our Varg Vikernes uh, segment, <laughs> but he is not a good guy. Do no. not read his books. <laughs> no. <clears throat> and the final, the the very last search term it shows, which episode does Gideon die in Criminal Minds? <laughs> I bet I would almost bet that was our mom because our mom <laughs> is a big Criminal Minds fan. Really loves watching that death scene, man. What I don't think he died on screen. I've not watched Criminal Minds, so I have no idea. That's that's um... with the exception of some very iffy uh, glorification of law enforcement. Uh, if you enjoy the psychological aspect, it's yeah. it's not bad, or at least during its heyday. But I quit watching it like ten years ago, so I don't. It, know. It's a term that I learned in the last month called copaganda. So yes, <laughs> it's, it's one hundred percent that. Um, well, yeah, so those are some of the things people are looking for that are, that are, um, turning them to our show. So for all of you out there, um, by all means, you know, free country, feel free to, to keep looking up weird shit, um, that brings you to our show. Uh, If you are here listening because you Googled some weird shit and you found our show, um, Welcome. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is exactly what you were expecting in a few of those, but uh, we're happy to have you here. If you uh, if you were the one who Googled uh, Varg Vikernes books, shame on you. <laughs> but if you're someone who found us through searching for gay porn on Google, welcome. What's up? How's it going? <laughs> Glad to have you. These DMs are open. And so if, uh, <laughs> if you are new here... Um, you know, you may not you may not get the pace of things yet, but you're about to because um, as much as we'd love to sit here reviewing all of your weird Google searches, uh, and I genuinely would, I could do this for hours, but that's not why we're here. Purpose of this show is that we're here to talk about some guys. So let's get to it. Jack John, help us out. Yes. Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. Yeah, and nice. so, um, so yeah, we got three, what should be three pretty pretty great topics this week. Um, leading things off is Cody. Cody, who's your guy this week? Oh, I am so excited for this. Uh, this is a heavy hitter who's been on my list since the beginning. We are talking about Dr. Lawrence Pazner. Dr. Lawrence Pazder was born in Alberta, Canada in 1936, and we talked about this a little before the show. Folks, I don't know if we've done a Canadian person yet, and I yeah. do not 
I, I don't know how that's possible, but I just I can't remember it. So maybe this is our, our first uh, Canadian guy. And we could be wrong about um, this because we, we have talked about a lot of people at this point. But what we all decided is that if we had discussed a Canadian guy, we yeah. would have made a lot of jokes about it. And we think we would yeah. remember. Yeah. And I just want to say um, I can tell that you're uh, you're going to give it an A for effort. So <laughs> sorry to everyone about that joke. Sorry. Yeah. Are we, are we, can uh, we get yeah. all the Canadian jokes out now? No, no, no there will be more. Um, <laughs> but yes, they, they were a Canadian person. Um, <laughs> he went to, went to undergrad at the University of Alberta, which was at first a significant feather in their cap and later a sizable black eye on the institution. Oh, uh, boy. Yep. Uh, real, real roller coaster of a career Dr. Pazder had. Um, he originally in undergrad studied, and this is real. This is what they said he studied, tropical medicine, which I assume is just like regular doctor stuff, but you're also wearing a Hawaiian shirt and drinking <laughs> a pina colada out of a coconut. Um, I, I, Of course, the premier institute of tropical uh, medicine is the Jimmy Buffett Institute in Cancun, Mexico. I, I just really hope that he took a class which is called pineapples. <laughs> Hey, that's how you that's how you learn to treat Montezuma's revenge, sunstroke and alcohol poisoning. You want you want to know a fun um, sorry, you want to know a fun fact about the University of Alberta? I don't know why I just looked this up. Are there fun facts about that place? This one's kind of fun. Um Okay. The mascot for their men's sports teams is the Golden Bears. The mascot okay. for their women's sport te- sports teams is the Pandas. Why? Huh. I could not begin to tell you, but they have Why two not? different varieties of bear as their mascots that are apparently gendered. So pandas are ladies, I think is what we've. Apparently. I appreciate And uh, before we get an angry email from friend of the show, Marissa, yes, we know pandas are not bears. We are speaking colloquially. Yeah. <laughs> but they pandas are, are ladies. They are in quotation marks bears. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So apparently what tropical uh, medicine was, was the study of like diseases in tropical and sub-Saharan climates because he practiced in Nigeria for the next two years before he uh, returned to Canada to finish up uh, med school. In med school, he switched away from tropical medicine and decided on psychiatry for his specialty. Wanted to be a psychiatrist. That already a red flag as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and like, look, that's there, just... there, there have been genuine important advancements in that area of science, but in theory, if you are someone who aspires to get inside people's heads, you're a little off, and I say this as someone who chose to be a lawyer. We're the same way. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he graduates, becomes a psychiatrist, uh, established a very lucrative practice, uh, private practice, in addition to seeing patients at two different hospitals in Vancouver, where he wound up. Um, he also got married and had four children. So right now, this guy is just living white, middle class, Canadian, uh, young professional dream right now. He's just yeah. everything's going according to Hoyle. I bet it's going to stay perfectly normal for him. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Actually, the funny thing is, the reason we talk about this guy on this show is that, no, it did not. 
it did not uh, get more normal oh in the my. slightest. I know that is hard to believe. Um, One day I want us his... all just to pick normal people, and that's the joke. <laughs> that could be our April Fool's episode. <laughs> we just do completely normal people and do it totally deadpan. Um, so everything remains on a pretty even keel until 1973. And this is the moment in that old black and white film noir movement um, movie where Bogart goes, and that dame walked into my office and turned the world upside down. And everyone was smoking and it was black and white. Mm-hmm. Everyone was drinking. It's It was constantly <laughs> 1030 at night. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the young lady in question uh, was a woman named Michelle Smith who was coming in for treatment. Um, she had just had a miscarriage and came in for treatment for depression. She was not in a good place for several years after uh, the miscarriage. She was still married, but their marriage I don't think was doing great. Um, and in 1976, she told Pazder after being treated by him for three years, uh, she told him that she felt like there was something important she needed to tell him, but she couldn't, remember what like she just felt like there was something she should tell him but she just couldn't come up with what it was so Pazder turned to a practice that was very popular in the 70s and 80s and ultimately probably the most harmful psychiatric practice since the invention of the lobotomy and I'm talking about of course repressed memory therapy yeah jeez Alex uh, I think you're probably just because we like the same kind of weird shit. You're probably familiar with, with what this is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for, for those, uh, for those uninitiated, what he would do is he would use hypnosis in itself, already kind of a dodgy practice. And he would put them into a quote unquote trance and try and get your patient trying like speak directly to their subconscious to recall the memory of whatever the root of the problem was. See, there was a pretty popular theory back then that a lot of people's, um, a lot of people's mental illness was uh, linked to trauma, which is still right. A um, true popular theory, but a lot of times it's a lot of times it's not, or yeah. it's a more gradual and general trauma than something specific. Yeah. But psychiatry hadn't really figured that out yet. So yeah. they, they were operating under this theory that if you were one of these people, no, you had some kind of horrible trauma in your past. You just, you just didn't remember it. Right. Your brain just right. locked it away. Surely you had some, which is surely you had some terrible event. And if you can't think of it off the top of your head, it must be that you buried it down. And so we got to get dig under there to figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. A very self-serving and faulty premise. Yes. And there are, very few cases of actual repressed memories in the history of psychiatry. There are still some cases where they think that, yeah, your brain can do that. But um, number one, that is rare. And number two, this kind of therapy does not actually help with that. Uh, the, the biggest problem with this practice is that it does not actually work. Um, as we will talk about in greater specifics later, um, basically what happens is instead of pulling the memories from your subconscious, like, uh, Harry Potter style, yeah. it puts you into a kind of a dream state 
where your brain behaves not unlike it does in a dream, and it just kind of starts mashing things together. Yeah. Things that you've right. thought, things that you've seen, <laughs> things that you've just even thought about lately. As it turns um, out, your brain is hyperactive and is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, think about the, all of you listening. Have any of you ever had a dream where everything that happened was a reenactment of a real event? I mean, it doesn't, that's not how the brain works. Yeah. And so no. already we, we come across a big flaw in this, which is that a lot of times it's based on real things. Yeah. But it's, as you kind of said, mishmashing things together and, yeah. and pulling different things to fill in the gaps. It's like those kind of dreams where, like, you're an adult, but, like, you're in your childhood home, and there's people from different parts of your life that are there. It's just, it's shoving everything together. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's one big pitfall of this. <laughs> the second is that when you are in this state, you are extremely suggestible. Right. No matter what your personality is when you're awake, when your brain has kind of stopped playing defense, there's a lot that can happen. Yes. Um. So whatever your doctor asks you about in that state, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? That's where your brain goes. Also, um, as we'll talk about in a little bit, there was some stuff in pop culture that fed into what Michelle saw uh -huh. when she was in this dream state. Yeah. Um, also, bear in mind, Pazder was a devout Catholic. And I'm not saying doctors should never be Catholics, but I mean, right. if you're 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 a person of science and I just I want you to consider that weight against the stuff that you believe deep down in your soul and tell me there's not a little cognitive dissonance there. There are a lot of doctors who can work around it, but I just I think you need to be aware of that. Yeah, it's like I think a good qualifying question would be like, OK, I mean, your your religion is your religion, but. Do you think that all the stuff about, like, exorcisms is true? Because if, if you do think that, then I, I think you should not be practicing yeah. medicine. I, I'll issue a blanket ruling on that. Well, Pazder believed in that kind of thing 100%. Also, That's the impression I'm uh, getting, it, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it was noted that uh, during uh, his time in Nigeria, there were, uh, among the Western people there, there were a lot of rumors of blood-drinking cannibalistic cults in Africa at that time. So all of this is uh, flying around the good doctor's head while he's trying to dig some trauma out of Michelle's past. So what did Michelle regurgitate in her uh, dream state? At, at first, nothing. So this is really odd. He said the first time they did it, she screamed for 25 minutes straight, like continuously, and then started talking to him in the voice of a small child. Uh, what exactly it said, I could not find. But that that's that right there has got to tell you that something about this is a little wonky. Yeah. But Pazder was immediately like, got it. Bingo. Nailed it. We're on the right track because yeah. she's reliving that trauma, hence the screaming, and now she's going back <laughs> to her childhood. And, of course, he immediately made those assumptions and ran with them, which just led that to be suggested straight back to Michelle. So her subconscious just doubled down on this because now now it's starting to build a narrative. And eventually what she related was memories of being held captive and abused by a huge satanic cult, which they called the Church of Satan. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, there is, uh, for those of you who don't know, there is actually a Church of Satan yeah. uh, but... led by Anton LaVey who eventually sued the crap out of Lawrence Pastor for this. 
without <laughs> Satanist, generally cool dudes. It, yeah. They're, well, that, eh. well <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that practice is like not what the general public thinks it is as to whether yeah, they're no, cool is a matter of debate. We have, not, we have discussed this. Yeah. We've discussed this on the show a little bit, but in case you missed it, what it isn't is a bunch of people who worship the devil. Yeah. Right. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of atheists who think they're being real punk rock about it. Yeah. It's, it's um, mainly, in reality <laughs> they are frequently very yeah. cringy. But, yeah, it, it's but, it's, but it's not like a cult. Yeah. They're not people doing they're not people, you know, getting together and doing bloodletting rituals and feasting on the flesh of children. No. They're just like yes. they're just like edge lords. That's that's all, yeah. kind of all they are. Yeah, they they don't they don't worship Satan. They don't even believe in Satan and they sure as fuck don't do shit like this. Yeah. Um but yeah, she was abused by this huge satanic cult. Uh she claimed the abuse began when she was 5 years old um and included both sexual abuse, torture, being locked in a cage, uh witnessing various human and animal sacrifices really the full gamut of of fake satanic bullshit um just really really got them all in a smorgasbord if you will um these rituals apparently took place in the ross bay cemetery which is a fairly prominent cemetery in victoria in british columbia where she grew up she claimed that her mother uh, brought her to this cult and took part in these rituals herself, but she could never identify anyone else that was there. Eventually, this whole thing culminated in a final 81-day ceremony in 1955. 81 days in a row, they were just up there being spooky and satanic. What the shit? Well, I, I tell you, it, it might have. they might have needed 81 days because they had a lot on their plate. Because what were they yeah. doing? They were summoning Satan himself. Oh, fuck. <clears throat> and, yep, after 81 days, out pops the Prince of Darkness. And it, it seemed poised to go very badly, but now, hold don't on. worry. Did, did she say whether or not anyone bailed after, like, day 45? That's that, <laughs> I think that's yeah. when I would have called it quits. Yeah. We will get to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll table that thought. Yeah. I have some thoughts on that as well. No, she yeah. did not actually specify whether anyone did that. I can answer that for you right now. Like, I like this podcast. I like you guys. I couldn't do this shit for 81 days in a row. No, and what's more uh, what's more important, the general public would kill us. <laughs> Cross that idea off. <sighs> if they yeah, if they had to listen to us for 81 days in a row, they'd kill us after about 8 hours. Yeah. Um, but after old scratch makes his appearance, the day was saved by the intervention of, can anyone guess? This is anyone got a guess. This is Canada. So I'm going to say Dudley do right. No, I wish maple syrup. Jesus. Jack, John, you're a little closer. <laughs> it is the Archangel, Michael, the Virgin Mary, and Jesus Herald Christ himself. Oh my goodness. Holy fuck, we got us a That's fatal right. They, they called the Catholic Avengers <laughs> to come take care of this shit. Jack John, it's like when the, this... it's like on uh, Raw when the shield reunited. <laughs> the crowd just fucking fist bumping each other Where... and losing their goddamn minds. Were you weren't you in that audience? Oh uh, yes I was. That uh the shield formed and reunited in Indianapolis. Right on. So this trio removed the scars from Michelle's body and 
locked the memory away until, quote-unquote, the time was right. This is what Michelle remembered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After these memories are unlocked, Michelle and Lawrence Pazder, because, again, he is a credulous moron, <laughs> went to various church officials, including a trip to the Vatican itself in 1978. Oh, oh, boy. The pilgrimage. And as horrific as all of this is, and as terrifying as it must have been to someone like Pazder... That wasn't going to stop him from either making a buck or getting some. Well, see, sometime in the late 70s, Pazder and Michelle started making their relationship a little bit more than business. They started an affair in the late 70s. Pazder left his wife for her. She left her husband and they were married. So this guy is like a piece of shit in like every possible way is what I'm. Yeah, no, he is an he is an exploitative just he is the worst kind of physician you can be, and I mean that in about the most serious way you can. Yeah. Nothing this guy did was okay. Yeah. yeah. Um in nineteen eighty he published his book co authored with Michelle. It was called Michelle Remembers. And folks, this thing was a smash. Yeah. It was flying off the shelves. Yep. It detailed the treatment and descriptions of the harrowing abuse she'd endured and warned of the dangers of satanic cults, all while hyping up Pazder's favorites um, practice uh, memory recovery therapy. I hope there's like so a people chapter fucking... in the middle of them like boning, and like that's a key part of the story. <laughs> so it was brought up later on that there were certain things that were not made mention of. <laughs> like, for one, the fact that after Pazder um, heard that she'd been sexually abused, he did not contact the authorities... Yeah, uh, just the church, and also uh, did really not good say about anything. making sure that gets covered well. <laughs> yeah, that they're they're great at taking care of that. Um, also, no mention was made of their personal relationship, despite the fact that it was written during the time it was happening. So, left that out completely. Still, people fucking ate this shit up. It was covered in People mag- magazine. She went on talk shows. And for a long time, a lot of the people accepted this as fact. See, the 1980s was, and largely this incident, was the jumping off point for what was known throughout that decade as the satanic panic. <sighs> and we will get to, to the specifics on that. Well, thank God it's a over. A little bit more. <laughs> well, I mean, it's... Yeah, it, it's not as bad as it was, at least. Um, yeah, that's true. But yeah. it, it persisted throughout the entire decade, and even 10 years later, in 1989, she went on Oprah. Again, this is after Oprah was hugely popular, and it was treated as absolute fact. Oprah never questioned this at all. Just, this is something that happened. Um, The book was not without its skeptics, and that gives me a little bit of faith in the... Uh, Sure. scientific community various people started investigating these claims because there were some people as gullible as a lot of people were in the grip of this big kerfuffle over satanism um there were a lot of people that read this and went no <laughs> this is insane there is no way that this is real so they decided to use the scientific method and look for evidence Various people investigating these claims discovered that 
not only during that time where the 81 day ritual was happening, not only was Michelle attending school every day, also nobody ever noticed any kind of sign of abuse on her whatsoever. And if even a quarter of the shit in that book was true, she'd be walking around looking like half a corpse all the time, like just covered in blood and beat to hell and having been living in a cage. So still no one could recall any instance of, of, any hint of that kind of thing. They also pointed out that, hey, this cer- this cemetery you said this happened in, it's right in the middle of a fucking residential neighborhood. Like, it is surrounded by, like, cul-de-sacs on three sides. Jeez. There is absolutely no way that you could have gotten away with this without multiple people noticing. Even if it were in some giant underground chamber, which I think maybe she might have, I, I did not catch that detail, but she might have said that. There's still a bunch of people in robes and skulls and shit carrying a screaming five-year-old girl down into this chamber. And like again, she said these rituals had hundreds of people there. Like th- There's just no way you could keep this under wraps. It would be impossible. Also, I, I kind of forgot to get into this a, a few minutes ago, but that 81 day ritual thing really trips me up because like within that parameter of 81 days, there's like stuff you gotta do. Like you gotta gro- go to the grocery yeah. store and yeah. like get your hair cut. And yeah. so you're telling me some schlemiel just came out of this satanic ritual where they're like sacrificing people <laughs> and ritually abusing kids. Yeah. And then just walks into the, like the local convenience store. Like eh, need yeah. eggs, need bread, need milk. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's 81 days in a row. There's a holiday in the middle of there somewhere. Like, I can't imagine they're meeting on, like, Labor Day to have this shit happen. So, so uh, yeah, but do you just do that and then go straight back to <laughs> your, your satan? Like, I don't see how your brain can, can switch gears that fast myself, but... What's the... I don't know. What's the what's the bathroom situation like? They got, they got porta-potties? They have enough? Well, I mean, these are... These are "Quote unquote Satanists, the greatest yeah. hedonists in the world. They probably just shit wherever they want to. Oh, fair point. I like to imagine it's like a it's like a concert. There's like ten porta potties in a row and like a nice line and like a wash station out front. <laughs> imagine sitting on the toilet at a satanic mass. What is going through your head? The guy just walks like, what, out. What has my life become? Don't go in there. I just dropped something ungodly. <laughs> Which brings us to uh, I I I heard uh. I heard a rumor that uh, Satan actually, for real, did appear uh, once in our time, but it was at Woodstock '99, and it was uh, he had to leave because it was, it was too much for him. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, all of this is seriously like there were a lot of people going. You you can't be serious. There's just no way this is possible. Um, but a lot of people. Because this is the way the Western world at least thinks. A lot of people didn't want to hear that. They would rather believe it. So they just ignored it. All of that criticism, all of the giant holes that have been poked in this, just (laughs) dismissed them out of hand. Um, There was also a car crash mentioned in the book that there was no evidence for. Nobody could find any record of it, despite the fact that the local paper had a policy of reporting all traffic accidents in the paper. Um, Michelle's father also did an interview where he said, yeah, all of this is horse shit and I can refute 
every single claim she makes here. So he he brought receipts, and still everyone's like, "Yeah, that's just what they want you to think." Yeah, that's what an abuser would that's, say. That's the that is the wonder of conspiracy brain. Everything that happens is just even when it like refutes it precisely what you're saying. It only fits into the bigger conspiracy. Yeah. The fact that someone is telling me that I'm a fucking moron is just proof that I'm right. (laughs) Yep. That's how Americans think. Yep. And Canadians, apparently. Um, This phenomenon, this particular incident, and also that kind of conspiracy brain thinking that we've been talking about was instrumental in shaping the satanic panic in the eighties. One thing that was that really gave some wings to this was that repressed memory therapy became more popular. Just kind of like the lobotomy, sometimes the things that come into vogue in psychology are not good. Um, so people began using this much, much more. There's also just the standard Reagan-era paranoia about satanic cults due to our, our weird cultural puritanism that we had back then. Um, both things that were largely inspired by the book Michelle remembers both the repressed memory therapy craze and also people fear mongering about satanic, uh, abuse in repressed memories largely stem from this. Yeah. Um, and just more and more claims of satanic ritual abuse started coming throughout the eighties. Lawrence Pazder himself actually consulted with authorities on the famous McMartin preschool case, Ah. which is probably the most famous satanic panic case. God in heaven. One of, yeah. Talk about a clusterfuck of epic proportions. These trials, this string of trials altogether took, I think, nine years from start to finish. The longest and most expensive Mm -hmm. in history. No convictions. Nobody got convicted at the end of it. Well, and that's the good part. Yes. Is that nobody got convicted. The fact that it was a waste of time was actually better than had it not been. Yeah. Because all of this is horseshit. Um, There were another, uh, a bunch of other high profile cases as well. But eventually, towards the end of the decade, the psychiatric community, after further scrutiny, came out and denounced the practice of memory recovery therapy and admitted that it mostly yielded false memories and nothing a patient claimed to remember was all that likely to be, to be accurate. So you've been wasting your time the last 10 years, basically is what they said. This finally kind of put the fire out on the satanic panic because not only were they not doing repressed memory therapy as much anymore, but just the times were changing. We were becoming a little less obsessed with, with Satan Um, Because remember, right before this, a couple of things in pop culture, there was uh, a big horror revival boom in the 70s, and a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it dealt with um, Satan. Like, The Exorcist came out in, I think, 73, not long before this. uh, There was The Omen Mm -hmm. in the later 70s as well. Lot of demonic possession type stuff. You know, that was just a popular trope in the horror genre, and it was kind of in people's yeah. minds, and they this... associated that with like the worst thing you can possibly imagine. Oh, this segment's where we need Pookie here. <laughs> yeah. He's the aficionado um, of, of the horror genre. Yeah, although I'm I'm not too far behind him. I, I think I can hold my own, but this finally 
kind of put the kibosh on the satanic panic. And that lost Lawrence Pazder both his meal ticket and his reputation within the psychiatric community. It went straight into the toilet. They thought this guy was a huge fucking joke. Because, I mean, this guy went all the way to the Vatican. He splashed this across every headline he possibly could. Turns out there's almost zero chance any of it happened at all. Um, The rest of his life was relatively unremarkable. He died in 2004 of heart failure. Now, that said, there are still people largely among the evangelical Christians and occasionally more hardcore Catholics who still believe every word of this. Yeah. They still think this really happened. Um, Pastor and Michelle remained married until he died um, and maintained that every single word was true. They never once changed their, they, they never once admitted that it were, was even possible that they could have been wrong about any of this, which I guess once you've taken it this far, you kind of have to. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say that like, Sort of a benefit of, 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 like, generally on principle, looking at things through a skeptical framework, is that you will never commit so hard to one of these things that is wound up that winds up being shown to be um, irrefutably false that you have to pretend that you still believe it. That mm-hmm. will never happen if if you just have healthy skepticism about things. Yeah, but that ends the story of Dr. Lawrence Pazder, one of the least ethical physicians in the history of the job and just a real dirtbag who caused yeah. a lot of problems for a lot of people based on absolutely nothing. Booze Lawrence, Lawrence Pastor. What a shit bag. Yes. Boo. <laughs> Hiss. Yeah. No good. So, but we're going to take our revenge right now is what we're going to do because for my big question tonight, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in a time machine. We're going to go back in time. And you, having your a priori knowledge that all of this is bullshit, knowing that none of this repressed memory shit is true, and also knowing that this guy is enough of a buffoon that he's going to believe whatever you tell him, you get to go back and tell him whatever you want to fuck with him. What are you telling him you remember? Hmm. I am going to tell him that as a child... I had a brief stint on the Barney the Dinosaur show. And at the age of 10, I smoked my first joint with Barney. Fuck and, yeah. and it was awesome. And to be clear, I'm going to make it very I'm going to make it very clear I treasure this memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck, I would too. That sounds yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tell him something salacious like that and and tell him that I'm proud of it. I don't know what that's going to do to him. <laughs> Trevor Noah looks down, or uh, Trevor Moore looks down on you, knowing that you were smoking bones with dinosaurs. <laughs> R.I.P. Trevor. Hope you're proud of me. Um, see, I, I'm gonna go in a slightly different direction. I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a little bit more trauma. Uh, I was raised for a lot of my life uh, in a single parent home, uh, but we always had pets. Uh, and I'm gonna tell him that, honestly, looking deeper and back to it, uh, I like my dad wasn't in the house, but. The dog was always there. And I briefly remember when I was very, very young, my mom told me my 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 human dad isn't really my dad. The dog is my dad. And I am a dog boy. Uh, and I am birthed of a dog. I knew it. I like that. I've always had a That's predisposition how, yeah. to lick out of bowls. It's I'm a dog boy. I'm a dog boy. I told you that we're idiots were real things. <laughs> It's gonna, it's gonna backfire. Pazu's gonna wake you up and be like, "Hey, no, no, I'm 
something that I don't know. <laughs> the casualty of this is, is that, you know, my mom still exists and it makes it tricky. Uh, a hairy situation, if you will. But I'm a dog boy nonetheless. Yuck. That explains why you lick your balls so much, huh? Okay. Well, I thought you just liked it. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't you if you could? Yeah, that's why we're an audio-only podcast. The every video session is me licking my balls. He's doing that. He's doing that violin thing that cats or the cello thing that cats are doing, where the, the yeah. legs, one leg's uh-huh. just straight up in the air. They look like Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah. yeah. So, um, for me, man, I'm gonna get this guy back good because he paused. He caused a lot of trouble. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go under, and when I wake up, I'm gonna tell him I remember. An instance of satanic ritual sexual abuse. And he's going to say, by who? And then I'm going to look at him and say, by you. Oh, no. Yeah, I, th- I thought about <laughs> and it. Then his, I thought about that possibility, then, yeah. Then his head's going to explode because he, he <laughs> believes in this totally. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you put him under. He's going to be like, I don't know. How is this even possible? Gaslight the shit out Have of him. Have my own repressed him. memories. <laughs> so yeah um rest in piss to lawrence pasner uh a real shit stain of a human being and that's uh that's segment one what an eventful first topic that was um and i am up next and a bit of a change in tone um my guy is adolf sax uh sax and i'm gonna be doing this a little bit differently than how I usually structure my segments. Um, I'm going to give away the game right up front as for what this guy is known for. Adolf Sax, um, in his adulthood, would go on to invent the saxophone. That's where the name comes from. Hell yeah. yeah that makes sense. The reason why I'm telling you this up front is um, a big takeaway that I want for you, the audience, especially <laughs> in the early part of this segment, is to understand how close this world got on a numerous occasions to the saxophone never uh, coming to be in past. Segments, and you know what? As an aficionado of many different types of rock and roll music, that fucking sucks. That yeah. would suck. I would hate life without the saxophone. We will, we will get more into the, the, the scope of the influence of the saxophone. Um, but in, in past segments, I have compared characters, right? I've compared um, guys. I talk about to cartoon characters. Giuseppe Zangara with Scrappy-Doo. I compared Timothy Dexter to Spongebob. Adolf Sachs, as a child, was Kenny McCormick from South Park. This, <laughs> he died like... Did he one, die frequently? He died like once a week. He had a, <laughs> he had a ridiculous number of close brushes with death. Um, but we'll get to this. So, um, Adolf, he was born Antoine Joseph Sachs in 1814 in the city of Dinant, Belgium. I believe the first Belgian guy we've ever talked about. Um, and it's here where I, where I will acknowledge my source, which is very random. Actually, a, a short but very detailed biography written by um, Albert, Albert Remy for um, the City of Denon's tourism website, of all things. Please tell me the, the story of him growing up is exactly like the speech from the first Austin Powers movie where Dr. Evil describes his upbringing to group therapy. Because that is one of the funniest, like, three minutes in movie history, yeah. in my opinion. Well, one, one key difference between uh, Adolf Sachs' upbringing and Dr. Evil's upbringing is uh, the difference in types of father that they had. Um, <laughs> and on that note, 
two qualities that would come to define Adolf. He had incredible talent and also incredible misfortune, both of which qualities may have been passed down from his father, Charles Joseph Sachs. Charles Joseph was a cabinet maker. He had rather modest success until shortly after Adolf was born. In 1815, his business and reputation really take off. He already ran a workshop in Dinant, um, but in 1815, he was able to open a second workshop in Brussels, so in the big city. Um, his work caught the attention of King William I of Orange, um, who appointed Charles Joseph, quote, maker of the court. Um, William of Orange making his second appearance on the podcast. Yep. <clears throat> so beyond just... Um, furniture, Charles Joseph was tasked with making instruments for the Belgian Regimental Music Corps, and so kicked off Charles Joseph's second passion, um, one that would eventually get handed down to his son, designing instruments. Um, Charles Joseph uh, crafted a number of different high-quality instruments at his shop and did not. Um, they would be brass instruments, woodwind, he would craft violins, pianos, um, all kinds of things. Um, some I'm just imagining... A Belgian like infantry unit marching into the battle, flanked by a bunch of saxophones. <laughs> that is the funniest instrument to play your way into battle with. Well, they're they're like Lisa like, Simpson you, at the beginning of the. Are Simpsons, we fighting or like fucking here? Dancing around the street, playing the saxophone while it's happening. Well, uh, maybe this guy was bleeding gums, Murphy. <laughs> well, on the military, hang on to that thought. Actually, um, so here we go. Some of, of Charles Joseph's um, instruments he made were novel concepts. He actually registered 12 patents for his instruments during the spin. <clears throat> so Charles Joseph's talent was quite apparent, but the infamous sax misfortune was quite apparent as well. Um, he, so during his lifetime, Charles Joseph had 11 children in all. Seven died during childhood. Which even for the standards God, of damn. even for the standards of back then is pretty bad. Like if you have eleven kids in the eighteen hundreds, like you're probably losing at least like three. But seven's yeah. pretty rough. Christ, did he just did, did they just pop him out and let him yeah. go to fend for themselves or something? Yeah. Like how, how are you killing it's, this many kids? It's never a good like sign when your child mortality rate is like a low level baseball player's batting average. Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're batting 280 on the uh, on the kids dying, you're you're doing better than you should be. Yeah, there there's like whatever the Mendoza line of of, of childhood of, of raising children is, he was under it. I think these days that's zero. <laughs> I think I think that's the the average anymore. Um, I believe they call that the uh, the Casey Anthony line. Anyway, so although. Oh. Uh, Although the, the other the other problem, although um, he was although he was highly successful and reputable, Charles Joseph's business in Brussels would eventually go under. Um, this is a little later in life. He would actually end up working for his son Adolf during Adolf's adulthood. Um, so regardless of all this, uh, Charles Joseph's work takes off during Adolf's childhood, and Adolf was the sort of kid he was a bit on the bookish kind of introverted side. Rather than um, playing with the other neighborhood kids, Adolf spent a lot of his time in his father's workshop uh, watching him do his work. And uh, to his credit, Charles Joseph was a very supportive father. Um, he didn't try and make Adolf into somebody that he wasn't. Um, he let Adolf hang around the shop and showed him the ropes of how he did what he did. Um, in addition, he and his uncle um, uh, taught him how to play instruments. Um, so Adolf, When he was insolent, he was beaten with reeds. Oh, wait, that's the wrong one. Sorry. <laughs> 
You'd accuse chestnuts of being lazy. That is all, that is to this day one of the funniest lines I've ever heard in a movie ever. I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. Um, so Adolf, he was a very, very smart kid. His natural talent was also quite apparent. Um, and accordingly, when Adolf got a little bit older, Charles Joseph made his son his apprentice. So, although Adolf inherited his father's talent, unfortunately, he inherited his uh, strange sense of misfortune as well. The short way of putting it, Adolf nearly died as a kid like a million times. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Let's get to some of them. <clears throat> so the first such incident, as a toddler, right after young Adolf learned to walk, he used his newfound abilities to step right out of a third-story window, which would be bad enough. But to make matters worse, he landed headfirst on a rock. The, the kind of thing... Oh, God. The kind of thing you would expect to be a death sentence for a, a, a two-year-old. Yeah. But he was fine. Yeah. <laughs> what I don't do you know. mean, fine? He was fine. I don't think he was fine. He might have not been dead. That's not possible. I mean, after childbirth, your head's pretty soft and, and kind of malleable for a while. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure he just bounced right off. He, he just gets up and his head's flat. <laughs> like... He's, he's, he's fine. His head's just totally flat. He looks like a fish. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm sure it sucked, but he, he survived. He had no permanent injuries. Um, at age three, Adolf finds and drinks a bowl of vitriolic water, or as we know it in layman terms, uh, sulfuric acid. Fuck. Oh. <laughs> and I'm what? sure. I'm no. sure. <laughs> I'm sure this was no fun for young Adolf, but again, he managed to live. God, imagine pissing that out. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the, the, the what was it, the Herman Mainway <laughs> bit on uh, Consumer Pro, bag of bugs, bag of vipers, bag of sulfuric, bag of sulfuric acid. Bag of sulfuric acid, yeah. <clears throat> um, also, as a young boy, um, for some reason, a bunch of gunpowder gun exploded right next to Adolf. He was burnt pretty badly, but again, he lived. Sounds like his parents are trying to kill him. <laughs> like, how does he keep getting into all these situations to begin with? His dad secretly Wiley Coyote, as it turns out. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a very grim thought, but keep in mind that the the Saxes did have seven kids who died, so maybe they're just, maybe they're just all like this. And Adolf, he had like he had the higher he had like the higher constitution mod of of the children. <laughs> Hey, honey, did you put that stack of dynamite away? No, what? Boom. All right, we're down to four kids now. <laughs> it reminds me a little I bit just, of... Um... He's just... Go ahead. He's just wandering around getting into... Almost yeah. getting into all these disasters. He's just like a little Belgian Mr. Magoo. I was going to say, if if they were from the Americas, I would just call them Cletus. Like Cletus's family. From the Simpsons. <laughs> The, the other cartoon comparison I would make at this really young age is um, uh, Mindy from Animaniacs. <laughs> Just constantly getting into near-death scenarios. Yes. <clears throat> um, okay, I love you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so there was another time when um, some freshly varnished items were left in his bedroom at night. And they apparently didn't know as much about the dangers of toxic fumes back then. <laughs> Because Adolf nearly asphyxiated and died before narrowly being saved. And to add to the absurdity of the situation, that didn't just happen once. That exact scenario played out three different times, and Adolf yeah. survived each time. Alright, look, Man. it's time to close up the shop. The shop's a little full. Uh, we just finished staining all these cabinets. We're just going to put them in the kids' bedroom again. I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> this kid's just Belgian Deadpool. 
<laughs> you, you can't kill him. You can try all you want. He just keeps coming back. So I want to play a mini game here. Oh no. We've we've joked a few times oh, about I hate side quests. We've <laughs> joked a few times about the TV show Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, starring the wonderful Jonathan Frakes. Premise of the show is that they will show you um, a few segments featuring dramatized versions of strange tales, and the the goal is for you, the audience, by the end of the episode to guess which ones were real and which ones were, were completely made up, and they reveal it at the end. So I'd like to play a little game of Beyond Belief Factor Fiction here. What I'm going to do, okay. I'm going to list three, three Adolf Sachs childhood near-death scenarios. <laughs> two are true and one is fake. And I want the two of you to guess which two are true and which one is fake. Guess the imposter, okay. in other words. Okay. All, All right. right. So listen carefully. Scenario one. Fell onto a hot cast iron frying pan and getting badly burnt. Scenario two, trampled by stampeding dairy cows while visiting a farm. What? Scenario three, hit in head randomly by rock and as a result, falling off a bridge into a river and nearly drowning. So which of those three scenarios is the fake one? You know what? The most plausible one to me sounds like the frying pan. So I'm going to guess that one's the fake one because this guy's just ridiculous. All right, Jack, John, what's your guess? I'm going to guess you're hoodwinking us. All three are mostly true, but the, like a variable has changed. And I'm going to guess that like he fell off the bridge, but the river was like low and he just hit rocks again at the bottom. Well, I'll help you out. There, there are no trick, there are no trick okay. answers here. Uh, then the stampeding cows. Jack John, you are correct. The cows one was fake. The falling into the frying pan and getting hit in the head by a rock <laughs> and falling into a river. Uh, those two did in fact happen. Jesus I knew that one happened. That was too stupid to have been made up. There was, there was no way that you were going to say that and not have it be real. Like, I just imagine at this point, his parents are getting more and more exasperated, finding activities where he's not nearly going to die. Like, okay, let's go out to the bridge. Let's let's go feed the ducks. A nice, quiet day. Rock just comes flying in from out of nowhere. Fucking brains him. He's, he's just walking around in full football gear all the time. So... Adolf's constant brushes with death, they become so notorious around the neighborhood that neighbors took to calling him, quote, Little Sax the Ghost. Jesus Which fuck. is very dark, because I, I guess the idea being like, he must be a ghost. His kids died like 50 times by now. <laughs> he's just Casper. He's just too chipper to know he's dead. Adolf's own mother commented, quote, he's a child condemned to misfortune. He won't live. Which a tough oh quote from, okay. from your mom, especially like th this lady would know about which, like she's had seven kids die. Like, you know, <laughs> so if, if you are as a parent cognizant enough to figure that out, maybe try and do something about that. <laughs> like, Quit letting him leave the house. Maybe try and keep him out of danger a little bit more often. Thankfully, both for the sake of himself and the world, his mother was incorrect. Um, he survived his childhood um, and actually became a bit of a prodigy. He started crafting his own instruments and playing them at expositions by the age of 16, um, starting off with flutes and clarinets. At age 20, he crafted his first new form of instrument, um, a type of clarinet with 24 keys. Shortly after that, he crafted a new variety of bass clarinet. This clarinet impressed uh, the orchestra leader of the Paris Opera House, 
which was no small feat since that particular orchestra leader typically hated clarinets, calling them, quote, barbarian instruments. Which I, I love that quote. That's such a charmingly French flavor of melodrama. Can you imagine having that strong of an opinion about a clarinet? <laughs> yeah, what, what the fuck? What kind of weird snobbery <laughs> is this? Like, how do, you, how do you determine which orchestral instruments are low class? Let alone a clarinet. I would love to see him walk into, like, a music room full of second graders playing the recorder. <laughs> He just goes full Gordon Ramsay on him. <laughs> um, so, um, however, as is always the case with Wonderkins, Adolf's prowess attracted jealous scorn as well. The clarinet soloist for the Great Royal Harmony in Brussels, he scoffed at Adolf's creation. He refused to play it because it came from, quote, that weedy little pupil, Sax. Which I'm sure was quite the epic burn in mid 19th century Belgium. So this is just the asshole main character from Amadeus is basically <laughs> what we're looking at here. So Adolf responds, and I am not making this up, by challenging him, not in, in these words exactly, but essentially by challenging him to a clarinet battle. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're getting into some real, like, <laughs> real nerd shit. <laughs> some, Worst yeah. You Got Served prequel ever. Yeah. This event attracted an audience of 4,000 people. God damn. Not a lot to do back then. I was fucking... God, Jesus. So they, they have dueling clarinet solos. And when it was all over, the crowd agreed. Adolf Sachs blew this jealous little shit out of the water. <laughs> and to quote Adolf Sachs immediately after, I done told you once, you son of a bitch. I'm the best there ever was. <laughs> And then he got a clarinet made of gold, and the other guy poofed away in smoke. Well, the, the actual fallout from this, um, it was such a profound musical ass-kicking, Adolf himself got hired on as a clarinet soloist at the Royal Conservatory in Brussels. Um, a pretty sweet gig, and composers... It, it was said that composers would write pieces for him that had to be retired after he left, because nobody else was capable of performing them. Like, this is the he's, stuff of legends. the... He's the Eddie Van Halen of yeah. clarinets. I was going to say, this guy's like the Chuck Norris of the clarinet yeah. world. <laughs> yeah. Just what what superlatives are left yeah. for this dude? Right. I've been listening yeah. to a lot of Dragon Force. So I was going to call him the Herman Lee, but yes, also sure. that. Yeah, that's a good call, yeah. Yeah, he was a technical marvel on the clarinet. So at age 28, Adolf moves on up to the big time and relocates to Paris. There he began crafting brass instruments. Um... He crafted a bunch of different instruments. Um, during this time, the most prominent of his inventions was a subfamily of instruments called sax horns. Um, it began with Adolf tinkering with incorporating valves into ordinary bugles. And bugles, I mean the, uh, the, the instrument, not the uh, salty snack that you can put on the ends of your fingers <laughs> and pretend you're a scary monster. Mm -hmm. Love that. My lamest, that would my be lamest much riff more of all impressive time. Be if, he, if he managed to put valves on those bugles. I mean, it sounds like he's the kind of prodigy he could make the fucking corn tortilla chip an instrument. True. If anyone could do it, it's Adolf Sachs. So um, anyone can do that if you make it <laughs> percussion. Anything's an instrument. <laughs> Everything's a drum. So with respect to the sax horns, it was less that Adolf had developed an entire an entirely new variety of brass instrument, but more it was a new subclass of existing horns. Um, 
the saxhorns really caught on in the mid-1800s. Composers liked them a lot and started composing arrangements around them. The saxhorns were so successful that an entire music fad called the British Brass Band Movement uh, was forged around them. It became one of the biggest music trends in the late 1800s in the UK. Um, I'm just imagining a bunch of old British, like their equivalent of boomers, talking about those stupid kids and their (laughs) French horns and their saxophones. (laughs) Stupid trash music. (laughs) So today, sax horns are a little more obscure, but they were the direct ancestors of flugelhorns and euphoniums, which are very commonplace among concert and marching bands. Um, Flugelhorns actually will occasionally... They're not talked about much, and I think it's just because it's such a funny word, but you still hear them in, in popular music fairly yeah. frequently. Yeah. yeah. Fugelhorns sound like they're a Dr. Seuss instrument. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I, I will just throw this out there, by the way. I'm going to make this take. Band geeks, one of the best kinds of geek. Yeah. yeah. Probably one, sure. of the, probably one of the cooler way, varieties of geek is the band geek. Yeah. Way, way less irritating than were, theater kids. Were, Jack, were you a band geek? I was not, actually. Oh, it's I, I surprising. I feel like I would have been. Um, I went to like a band call-out meeting in middle school, and then they told us we had to buy our own instruments, and I was like, cool, fuck this, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story with the sax horns. Another of Adolf's creations, though, has stood the test of time. In 1846, Adolf patented the first saxophone. Hell yeah. So the big appeal of the saxophone is that it kind of gives you the best of both worlds when it comes to wind instruments. You can play it much more technically like a woodwind, but it still has that loud, boisterous sound that all brass instruments have. Uh, Unfortunately, the, the huge success of the saxophone was something that Adolf didn't really get to experience in his own lifetime. It wasn't anything wrong with what he was creating. It was more that there wasn't really a genre of music back then that it fit all that well into. It was a definition of something that was ahead of its time. Um, and, and getting back to something you said earlier, Cody, because of its technical qualities and volume, its main use back then was in military bands. Oh my god. So yeah, it probably it's mostly like... Marching into battle accompanied by some velvety solo from an 80s movie soundtrack. I'm imagining him like playing it for the first time and everyone just kind of deadpan and he just goes... Well, you don't like that, but your kids are going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, um, the early 20th century in New Orleans saw the emergence of a new genre of music called jazz. And from then on, the saxophone became one of the most important instruments in the world. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this. Like, it's no small thing. Like, jazz is a very prominent yeah. genre in its own right, of course. But, like, it's incredi- it's an incredibly important piece of American culture overall. Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. You know, among other things, since jazz had a widespread appeal among the public, but many of the prominent performers were African-American, Jewish-American, women, jazz was highly important in diversifying um, the American cultural landscape. Um, Also beyond that, the way that, since jazz itself, it's streamlining a variety of different influences. It's like blues, ragtime, classical music, folk, it kind of streamlines all that into one genre. That played a huge role in developing later genres of music that we all enjoy, you know, like rock and roll, R&B, rap, etc. All, all descended pretty directly from jazz. Reggae. Reggae, of course. And of course, from reggae, you get ska. I was going to say, ska is pretty much just jazz light. Yeah. So this is all to say, 
jazz is among the most important pieces of modern culture, and it may not have been possible if not for the invention um, from this guy, Adolf Sax. Which is also to say that had Adolf Sax not narrowly escaped death over and over as a kid, <laughs> who knows how not just music, but history would be different today. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> and with that, we unfortunately transition to, look, <laughs> Adolf's talent clearly followed him into adulthood, but so did his misfortune. One, oh. <laughs> one problem he had was that he suffered from lip cancer over a period of five years in the 1850s. No. Lip cancer. Weird. Uh, yeah. In, in true Adolf Sachs fashion, though, he did survive. The, the article I read mentioned something about there being some random coincidence where he randomly encountered like a doctor from India who happened to know a remedy for it and cured him. I don't know if that's true or not, but that would make, that would be something that would happen to Adolf Sachs. I don't think the Indians are hiding the cancer cure. <laughs> the bigger problem he had was that apparently the world of musical inventors is absolutely ruthless. It was a constant combination of manufacturers either suing Adolf to challenge the legitimacy of his patents or Adolf having to sue other manufacturers because they were copying his inventions. This all added up to 20 years of legal battles. Jesus. So here's the good news. Adolf Sachs reportedly won every single legal battle he was ever involved in. Here's the bad news. The cost of litigating all these cases ruined him financially. Oh, no. He had to declare, I'm sure. He had to declare bankruptcy three separate times between 1852 and 1877, the last of which he never really recovered from. And Adolf Sachs, sadly, he died in poverty in 1894. I will say, though, during the 20-year span when all this was happening, while he was fighting legal battles and his lip cancer, Adolf's shop produced 20,000 instruments. And, and that's in addition to Adolf's side gig teaching music at the Royal Conservatory in Paris, which I'm sure was a very prominent gig. So that's Adolf Sachs, an incredibly impressive man with a very unbecoming but perhaps unsurprising end. Uh, a couple of modern accolades. To this day, the 200-franc Belgian banknote bears his image, so he's considered um, one of the most important Belgians. Then in the 90s, the saxophone experienced one of its grandest moments in the cultural spotlight when on June 3rd, 1992, nearly 30 years to the day of this recording, presidential candidate Bill Clinton played a wicked saxophone solo on the Arsenio Hall show. One of the most unforgettable, yeah. one of the most unforgettable moments in the history of American presidential campaigns. And you so know, say what you want about Bill Clinton, and I frequently do, but he slayed <laughs> that sax solo. He sure did. Ab absolutely for the culture. And so in January 1994, while on a presidential visit to Belgium for the 100th anniversary remembrance of Adolf Sax's death, the International Adolf Sax Association presented a tenor saxophone to President Clinton in both of their honors. And so that's the story of Adolf Sachs, a great inventor with a, a very um, a very unfortunate personal life, we'll say. And so that brings me to my big question. Um, and of all the questions that um, I have, have sent you to in advance, um, this one I, I'm, I'm among the most intrigued to find out the answer. What is your uh, favorite use of a saxophone in a song? What song has your favorite use of a saxophone? Okay, so Alex, you might be able to guess this one for me. I don't know if I've ever told you about this. 
but it's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I think it's one of the greatest saxophone pieces in contemporary history. The tenor sax solo from the end of Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road, played by legendary uh, rock and roll saxophonist uh, Clarence Clemens, RIP to the big man. Mm -hmm. And yeah, one of that solo, especially the beginning riff from that solo has been stuck in my head off and on since I heard that song nearly 30 years ago. Just it'll pop into my head like once a week. Yeah. If you want to hear it, it's got great staying power. If you want to hear like incredible prowess on the saxophone in the modern context, just listen to what Clarence Clemens did. Yeah. He's an icon. Yeah. Yeah. He is really kind of the. He he's like the Hendrix of the modern saxophone. Basically, he's the one the the guy that everyone picks out as technically the best. Also, I just love that song. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm gonna go a little bit more modern. And Cody, you're gonna be familiar with this one. Um, about three fourths of the way through the song, "Figure Eight by Trophy Eyes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. An incredible saxophone breakdown. Uh, in just an incredible song. I'm a sucker for horns in general in like pop punk mm-hmm. songs, but that especially that that saxophone is fucking amazing. So there's actually another contemporary example related to mine that I kind of wanted to to just talk about for a minute. Um, one of our favorite uh, musical artists, Aaron West and the Roaring Twenties, yes. when their uh, when their second album came out, uh, Routine Maintenance. I, when I first listened to it, I'm like, okay, he's been listening to a shitload of Springsteen. I can tell because this art uh, album is so heavily Springsteen influenced. And then he proved me right by, at the end of uh, the song, uh, Bury Me Anywhere Else, he also throws a sax solo in at the end that carries the song out exactly like in Thunder Road. And I thought, that's got to be an homage to that. And it turns out, yes, it was because then he started playing the cover on tour and they just recently dropped the studio version so that that was one of my coolest music nerd moments to be able to pick that out before I knew for sure. Right. Yeah, I like Springsteen obviously is great. Um I also have a huge soft spot for artists that are trying to sound like Springsteen, whatever you call that genre. Yeah. Um like two of my favorite bands are the Gaslight Anthem and the Menzingers, which that's kind of the whole point. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that Aaron West album is great as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember what was the what was the Against Me album that was super Springsteen? White Crosses. Yeah, very much so. Love Against Me. Fantastic record. Yeah. So my answer, I'm going to give an answer and then I'm going to give an honorable mention because I think there's one that should be mentioned. My answer, I, I feel like one of us has to do a ska one. Um, yeah. Mine is um, my favorite, and it's less that there's a particular solo, but just the way that it incorporates the saxophone throughout the inci- the entire song. Um, Everything Went Numb by Streetlight Manifesto. Um, oh, hell yeah. Like, yeah, and as far as ska bands go, they're all some, in modern ska, it's all some combination of influences of, like, punk, reggae, jazz. Streetlight Manifesto is the jazz turned very heavily up. Yeah. And so they incorporate the saxophone quite heavily. Everything Went Numb, and a great song on their debut album, which most of the songs are, like, anti-suicide albums everything went numb just a really interesting song about a bank robbery of all things (laughs) um yeah that that's mine but i feel like i should give an honorable mention to um of course careless whisper by wham sure one of the the most famous uses of a saxophone in a in a modern pop song now i think probably i here's my question 
and maybe you guys will know what I'm talking about, or maybe you don't know this song by its title. What do you think is the most famous saxophone riff in contemporary music? That one or uh, Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty? And if you don't recognize that by name, look it up. You will recognize the horn part immediately. Jack John, it was that one um, that they played during the uh, Rick and Morty episode, M. Night Shemalians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know that song. I'd have to yeah. go. Yeah, I'd have to go hear that one again to, to know for sure. Um, I mean, mainly when someone says saxophone riff, I think of the Careless Whisper one. But in part, yeah. that's, it's, such yeah. a, it's such an earworm. That's part yeah. of it. Also, and, I think we've got to we've got to throw out an honorable mention here to Yakety Sax. Well, sure, <laughs> you know, sure. <laughs> I I also want to throw out an honorable mention to the Lonely Island song "Sax Man" featuring Jack Black. <laughs> yeah, play some Sax Man. All right, well, uh, good answers to all of you. Um, I have about and, five different songs stuck in my head now. And the John Benjamin jazz album. <laughs> oh no. Any anything John Benjamin's worth a mention. Yes. <laughs> and so, okay, two fun topics to start us off. Uh, two very different tones, and um, to to change the tone once again, <laughs> we turn to Jack John. And Jack John, let me just say, I told you this in advance, and I think you know this. I have been waiting for quite some time for you to discuss this topic. It is a doozy. So yes. without any further ado, Jack John, take us away. Who's your guy this week? My gay, my guy this week is none other than Herb Abrams. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I'm digging back into my well of wrestling, guys. But this yep. is not a pro wrestler. Uh, but this man encompasses everything that was great about wrestling in the 80s and 90s. And we'll, we'll get into more of that soon enough. Yeah. Uh, but first, Herb was born in 1955 in Queens, New York. Uh, his parents, uh, Sonia Hoffman, and his dad, and I can't believe this is real, his dad's name, Abram Abrams. I see. Of course it was. Yeah, why not? Uh, but Abram Abrams uh, ended up being uh, quite the fashionista and was really big and prominent in the sale of uh, women's clothing, specifically women's dresses, uh, which is something that Herb would uh, pick up on uh, in his young adult life and became quite the savvy businessman with it. Uh, in 76, um, Herb was kind of beginning to show that he was a big wrestling nerd and kind of like a wrestling fan, but he didn't really have any connections to wrestling. And he ended up um, approaching on the street a photographer who was working with superstar Billy Graham in New York, who was a big, big prominent wrestler uh, in that time. And Herb kind of struck a deal and kind of like pitched an idea like, hey, like I work in a women's clothing line, like with my dad he can give you a deal for all of your wives for dresses if you guys start kind of promoing our shit. Okay, so did you did you say his name was Billy Graham? Yes, Superstar Billy Graham. Superstar Billy Graham, yeah. So not like not not like the Billy Graham that, no, that no, we're no. thinking of. No. The no. the psychotic evangelist. Yeah, different guy. No. Because that would be a <laughs> hell of a twist in the story. <laughs> although there although there was there there actually was a wrestling character who was based on Billy Graham and that style of evangelical, which is uh, bro, <laughs> Brother Love, portrayed by yes. Bruce Pritchard. Yeah. 
Yes. So basically, he he's at this stage, like in his like his early life. Herb is just like trying to get his foot into wrestling, and he is still like a businessman at heart. Though at the same time, in January of seventy eight. He ends up, because he's still, uh, he's ended up kind of, like, moving to, to L.A. and trying to, like, figure out what to do there. And he runs an ad in the L.A. Times uh, in the sales and commodities section. And this is, I will read the entire ad he runs in the L.A. Times. Money, 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 make it rich. And Herb lists his name and phone number. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that, that, everything about that, between the tone and and just the craziness of the idea this is this is the mode that herb abrams is in for the entire rest of the story yes that is who herb abrams is and one one more quick little just fun thing that i found while researching herb um so in february 88 um his dad of course uh, had a clothing line herb starts his own clothing line in 88 and it's a clothing line for plus-size women, uh, for like dresses and like kind of like almost like formal wear for women. And he names it "I'm a Big Girl Now." Don't know about that one, Herb. <laughs> that's just that's just creepy. Ugh. Little, that just that just gives me the. I don't even like thinking about that. Yeah. Little weird, Herb. What's great? about that and so this is in february of 88 i'm a big girl now as it turns out pull-ups and their i'm a big kid now branding happened in 89 he was a year before pull-ups on that so he gets a little bit of a pass okay yeah. fair enough that makes it a little less creepy a little but just a little <laughs> but also calling your plus size women clothing brand i'm a big girl now incredibly rude yeah, kind of shitty, but this was the 80s. We've, we've got a lot of 80s stuff going on this episode. Keep in mind of what you think about the 80s as I continue this story. Um, so, so Herb wasn't a wrestler, but he was very passionate about wrestling. And he was what some people would later call in the pro wrestling world a money mark. Which is someone with just a shitload of money who wants to be a part of wrestling by any means. So what ends up happening is Herb ends up attending this conference. And I will say now, just as a quick aside, a lot of my research as like the foundation comes from watching the Dark Side of the Ring episode on Herb Abrams, which is fascinating. Uh, you can rent it on Amazon for $3. It is worth your $3. It is... I Yeah, I believe they're, uh, believe they're on Hulu as well, if you get Hulu. Yes. Yeah, I think, Hulu, I think they're on Hulu, yes. Yes. Uh, but it's an incredible... Uh, backbone for the story and there's a couple other different sources that I used and I'll kind of mention them when they come up specifically but a lot of this will come from that and I do want to say that quickly uh, but Herb ends up going to uh, John Rezzi's Weekend of Champions which is basically just like this giant pro wrestling convention and it's a way for like fans to get to like meet pro wrestlers and do autograph signings and meetups but it's also a way to like get promoters to kind of like rub elbows with uh professional wrestlers and kind of like promo their shit it's just, it's almost like comic-con but not at that scale for like wrestlers in a way that they're just all there and they're all the big names that is a room that must be very interesting to me <laughs> i i know it smell crazy in there yeah <laughs> so this happens in august of 1990 and at this point herb is gung-ho on telling everyone that he is going to change 
the landscape of professional wrestling. And at this point, the WWF is like hitting megastardom. Like Hulk Hogan is doing a Hulk Hogan shit. Like they are they are running shit heavy and he's like, I can beat that. I can do something the next I can do the next big thing. I got it. So what he does is he ends up getting a very early backer, which is crucial for him to gain legitimacy. And that is Bruno Sammartino, a legendary wrestler um, from the 60s and 70s. Somebody who you can put your name on as a guarantee of like, hey, it's got Bruno. It's going to be good. He People are going to pay attention at least. Exactly. It's a big name. And during the Dark Side of the Ring uh, like doc on it, the episode... Uh, somebody was like, I couldn't believe it, and I called Bruno to confirm if this was real, and when Bruno said it was real, I believed it. Like, it, it was a seal of approval immediately. So what happens is that Herb holds a press conference at this convention. And to get an idea of who Herb is as a person, you just have to listen to the press conference. And here's a couple things that he does during this. First, he says that the head booker is going to be Blackjack Mulligan. A famous wrestler. See, that sounds like a 30s mobster from Chicago. The problem is Blackjack Mulligan is currently in prison. Yeah. That is a problem. Blackjack. Yeah, that could be a problem. Cody, you called him a mobster. He was arrested by the feds for counterfeiting. Okay, so a lamer mobster, but. Uh, the, The feds. The feds got him with half a million in fake 20s as he was just counterfeiting a shitload. (laughs) Um, he then said his next big proclamation during this press conference is that his star wrestler, his big, big, big guy to like really bring it in. Bruno is going to kind of like call the action with him. His star wrestler, Bruiser Brody, beloved pro wrestler, Bruiser Brody. Yep. Who was tragically murdered two years before this happened. That is the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which is another, another, another fascinating dark side of the ring episode is what oh, happened yes. to Bruiser Brody. Please yes. tell me you're going to explain what he was trying to accomplish with this because this makes no sense to me. What happens here is while everyone knows it's bullshit, pro wrestling at its heart and at its origin, we've kind of talked about this briefly, gets its heart and really drive from the circus and carnivals and bullshit carny magic. Yeah. The, the magic of that particular brand of bullshit yeah. is that neither of these people can really can yes. really turn him down publicly. Right. He has an out for not getting either of them. And and while everyone knows it's bullshit, there's just this charismatic, passionate guy who's selling you the world and you just kind of fucking like him. So you yeah. go with it. There's a there is a charm to Herb Abrams. Yes. There really is. And. And throughout this entire story and throughout the entire Darkest Side episode, or Dark Side episode, everyone had nothing but like glowing things to say. And they're like, you know what? Fuck it. I I just loved Herb. I was I was I was just I was I was I was enthralled with Herb. I believed in Herb. Yeah. And he was I'll a, get into some, He was a really he was a really short little geeky guy who was shouting all the time and just had some big ideas. He was yes. very endearing to people. He was, by what I could see, a 5'6 Jewish man who just energetic and passionate and would would tell you a story if you wanted to hear it kind of guy. So everyone's just kind of buzzing about this in 1990, and he ends up getting his debut October 1st, not too long after, in 1990, debuts his new TV show called Fury Hour, 
which debuts on cable television based uh, out of Reseda, California. And this first show, like the first couple shows in general, have some real promise to them. He's got wrestlers like Cactus Jack, Ivan Koloff, Bob Backlund, Dr. Death Steve Williams, Cowboy Bob Orton. He's got a lot of guys who were coming up in the 90s and a lot of guys who were big in the 80s. So he's got some established names who weren't working for the WWF or WCW at the time really co-signing on to this. Well, I mean, if you're those guys, you see another shot, you kind of got to take it. If you still want to, if you still want to get back into things, you, you know, you take whatever comes your way. And that's exactly what a lot of kind of the older guys saw was like, Hey, work a couple matches here for this guy. Maybe I get a little bit of good standing. I get back in the eyes of the WWF. I get back there, and it's it's my big shot. But Herb, Herb has really big ambitions. The problem is Herb doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so... the, the, the thing that both makes Herb so appealing and also the drawback is Herb is nuts. That is, yes. that is the thing with Herb. He's fucking yes. nuts. So anybody who's been listening to this podcast all along and is trying to pick up on some themes and recurring tropes, here's one. Big Honestly. ideas, no goddamn clue what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what really kind of drew some wrestlers to Herb Abrams' promotion was his very lax, offhanded approach of kind of like letting the wrestlers do their own thing. Uh uh, especially because like the, he didn't, because that way he doesn't have to do anything. Right. He he gave his wrestlers like a lot of creative freedom, which was great. Uh, Cactus Jack would go on to say that he really found his characters like origin and how to be Cactus Jack and the mannerisms and the mental state through the freedom he had with Herb Abrams yep. in the Universal uh, Wrestling Federation, the UWF. The problem though is this: is that wrestlers, especially in like the eighties and nineties, really only gave a shit about themselves. And would sometimes, like, only work, like, squash matches, which is where, like, you have, like, an established guy versus a local guy, and the object is just to beat the shit out of him in two minutes. Or you'd have what's called Dusty Finishes, uh, named after uh, Dusty Rhodes, where basically, uh, instead of me losing, no one wins. We both lose. Like, it's a draw, it's a countout, <laughs> it's a disqualification. Yep. It's It's something where... I'm not going to get pinned, so I'll just hit you with a chair and I'll lose that way. Yeah, one of one of the many ways in which pro wrestling continues to piss off pro wrestling fans is that kind of yes. finish to a match. Yep. Yes. So, in early review uh, of that, like those first couple uh, episodes, I found a review. Uh, I'm just going to read it word for word here because it really kind of encapsulates kind of what happened in these first couple shows. So this one was a uh, like a double show taping where they watched two episodes being recorded at once live and they would be distributed later. The person writes, seven squash matches in an hour. Seven. That's something that even shows like WWF superstars and WCW Worldwide couldn't manage to do. While impressive, it makes for a hideously painful viewing experience for me. Even seeing Zabisco, Larry Zabisco, on this show couldn't save it for me. They mixed it up a little bit with the talent enhancement matches, which made it a little easier, but it's still was seven of them with no matches featuring two stars together. A chore to sit through. And See, that's the kind of thing where you can, even if you don't want to have your stars wrestle each other, just throw a couple matches in there with some yeah. of the up-and-comers just to give them something where they're, they don't know going in who's going to win. Right. 
And there was a review that I watched uh, from Brian Zane, Wrestling with Regret, a, a great YouTuber who covers a lot of like old wrestling and stuff like that. A lot of the early shows and like pay, like big matches were like countouts and just not satisfying at all to fucking watch. Wonder, um, I, wonder but... if, I wonder if Brian and Vinny have ever reviewed any of these retro shows. I should look that up. Um, hold that thought slightly. Okay. Um, because we're gonna we're gonna talk about um someone that I know you're aware of soon. Sure. Um, so what happens is Herb kind of like has a little <coughs> bit of momentum. He's got quite a bit of money from investors and a little bit from himself. Uh, and he's he's kind of like he's making waves. The shows aren't like super super exciting, but fuck, it's a show with star power still behind it. And he gets a meeting with Vince McMahon of the WWF. And what Herb is going to do is he's basically just going to go to Vince and be like, hey, let's kind of work together a little bit. Like, the WWF is headquartered in Sanford, Connecticut, like in New York. Like, that's that's the WWF's home base. And the WWF has a big, like, standing in, the, like, the Midwest. WCW has the South. I'm Herb Abrams. I'm based out of California. I'm going to take the West. Uh, let's kind of work together on this and, you know, like not step on each other's toes and just kind of like have like a mutual coexistence. Vince McMahon basically just tells him to fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that doesn't sound like the kind of thing Vince McMahon would go for. Yeah. So Herb Abrams hears this, digests it, understands it, and as a rational adult goes full fucking scorched earth and says, fuck Vince McMahon, he's going down for sure now. What are you going to do to Vince McMahon? <laughs> the man has an empire. Like, <laughs> so he's, he decides, fuck Mc, Vince McMahon, UWF over everybody. So this kind of lays the groundwork for kind of how the UWF is going to exist. Let's talk more about Herb Abrams. Herb Abrams, I've said, is zany and kind of like energetic and wild let's look at what those words really mean so in in the dark side uh, documentary and a couple articles that i found also talk about this he ends up meeting uh with a man uh, named marty esberg aka colonel red and he basically wants to meet with colonel red and kind of just like get him on board with the uwf and really show him like what he can offer so Herb brings him out to California, puts him in like this kind of like little extended stay penthouse, like two bedroom, like almost like house in Beverly Hills. And Herb shows up and is just kind of like going to introduce himself and kind of lay some groundwork of what it's going to be. For Herb, what that means is he shows up with two hookers and cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and... Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that makes sense. And this really kind of establishes who Herb is. It it Herb, sure, it really does. <laughs> Herb Herb is a man of t three interests. Yes. In order, cocaine, prostitutes, pro wrestling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it basically ends up being this like kind of continuing story of just like Herb doing a fuckload of coke wherever he goes. Um I didn't want to say it until mm. now, but for the rest of this story, just assume Herb is doing cocaine and hookers. Yeah, Her Herb is on cocaine 100% of the time throughout yes. the rest of this story. So that, that and energy... Here, here's, here's the problem with cocaine as a drug. Especially at this time period, there aren't 
really a lot of people who do a little cocaine. <laughs> you either don't yeah. do it or you do it a lot. Yeah. Nobody dabbles in cocaine. You're either Zero or Scarface. Her, her Abrams mean, is... There, there are some people who like every, like, once a year or something like that. But if you are a regular yeah, no. user of cocaine... You yeah. will soon become a more regular user of yeah. cocaine. That is how that drug works. Well, you, you do a little Christmas bump when the first snowfall hits. I get that. But no, he's doing it every day. Yeah, Her, Herb is is doing the equivalent of, like, Scrooge McDucking into a, a room, <laughs> yeah. like a mountain of yeah. cocaine. That's Herb. During, I, I think that was in Scarface, too. <laughs> like, yeah. By, by every... Like account of somebody being interviewed or like shown in the in the the dramatization, they use the word mounds of cocaine. Yes, very very liberally. <laughs> so basically, this is kind of also like letting the guys know the wrestlers like, hey, um, this promoter just has a shitload of money and will bring me hookers and is doing cocaine. I'm gonna stay on because he's got a fuckload of money and I really don't care. Um, and in October, uh, 21st of 1990, still the first year, the first like six months of the UWF, Herb gets a massive fucking break, pun reference literally intended, Herb signs Andre the fucking giant to come on as like an ambassador to the UWF. That's, that is literally a big get. Yeah. Yeah. However, newly, uh, appointed enemy, Vince McMahon sees this and goes, no, 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 no. I have more money and probably more cocaine and immediately signs back Andre the Giant yeah. to a massive multi-year deal. Yeah. It was uh, $40 million and 5 million beers <laughs> is what was in his contract. <laughs> that'll, and that, that was just on the plane ride back. Say, that'll get, Actually, that'll get so, him through the end of the week. I haven't told this story yet. I'm going to go ahead and tell my boss's Andre the Giant story. Oh, Jesus. So... When he was young and he was uh, just kind of starting out in the media world, um, he I, I don't know if he was in college when he did this, but he at some point got uh, a pass to go down to some big wrestling event. And Andre the Giant was there. And he set something up to where he was, you know, the morning after the match, going to be able to go and interview Andre. Well, Andre's going to Andre. And he said, I went up there and I knocked on the door and just this roar of get out of here. Like he was still sleeping <laughs> off Lat's nice booze. So he he booked it and never looked back. But he said, Andre kicks through the 20 bottles of wine he had that night just to tell him to fuck off. It, he still says to this day, he is physically the largest human being he's ever seen. He's like, oh, his yeah. fist was the size of my head and then some like massive human being it's it's a shame he's too prominent to discuss on this show because i would love yes. to talk about andre the giant such I'll, a weird life I'll, i don't do my antidote me and my friends have long talked about doing something called the andre the giant challenge hell that yeah I, that i came up with um which is, is, is uh, allegedly andre the giant once drank 119 beers in six hours and so the gist of it is like i threw out six people but really, the goal is like, what is the smallest group you can compile yes. that can achieve that feat? Because the, the the hard part, because everyone brushed aside, like, oh, you know, that's twenty beers in six hours. Like, I get my best. But the thing is, like, if one person falters, yeah, and nobody can throw up. By the way, that is an Olympic team event of training and practice. Yes, it is. Yes. Um. So. Herb is kind of like taking some blows, but like still on the up and still kind of like prevalent for people. Um, and this is kind of where 
Herb kind of takes a little bit of a shift in his pro wrestling life. And he'd already kind of had the name, and cocaine be damned if this isn't a great cokehead name, Mr. Electricity. Oh, goodness. Yes. Uh, but Mr. Electricity starts to kind of, like, blur the lines. He was, at this point, calling matches and like as, like, a head commentator. But also as, like, the booker and essentially owner... He starts to interject himself more in storylines and starts like physically interacting and pushing storylines with the wrestlers as like an on-screen heel authority figure. Yeah. Which at this point is unprecedented really. He's doing this years before Evil Vince McMahon and even uh NWO Eric Bischoff. He's years ahead of these guys doing it. Yeah, and and I think like <laughs> Vince McMahon doing it is like is that the only time that gimmick has ever worked and it, it was in part because he was a foil to Steve, to like Steve Austin I don't think it would have right. worked if you didn't have Steve Austin there but like when Vince Russo switched over to, to oh, WCW God. and tried that that was like the death sentence for, for an, you know well, a, a historic company in WCW is so bad Vince Russo could almost be a guy just for the year 2000, which was just absolute insanity in yeah. WCW. Because that's when you also have David Arquette winning the fucking world title. Yeah. Uh, you have Vince Russo making himself the champion. A whole... Oh, my... I could go on rants yeah. for him. Um, but basically, at this point, he's starting to, like... Herb is starting to cut, like, kind of, like, these unhinged promos. There's a great shot in the uh, Darkest Side of the Ring, but also you can just find it on YouTube. It's, like, seven seconds... And it's Herb Abrams, unfucking hinged, bleeding. He's clearly like got into like a like a a, <coughs> a fight with one of the wrestlers that like he's going after, and he's like screaming at the top of his lungs, blood r dripping from his forehead, all over his shirt, and he's yelling, "Colonel Red, no one has ever done anything like this to me. I'm going to get you!" And he's just like <laughs> screaming till he's almost hoarse. Yeah, and, and I, I, I can't encourage you all strongly enough to, to go to YouTube and look up some Herb Abrams stuff. He is I will, he is out I will of his god he is out of his goddamn mind. I'll send what I have to Alex so we can post it after this. Yeah. Um, but hey, I tell you what, the UWF it's on the rise. We've got its first pay per view, June nineteen ninety one. We've got Beach Brawl coming yep. to you from Palmetto, Florida. Is a huge fucking get. It's admittedly an hour outside of tampa bay not necessarily like the greatest location you kind of want to be in a city for this yeah but it's okay big fucking pay-per-view this is incredible news they're getting the manatee civic center which is a great fucking name yeah this is a venue that seats four thousand people this is a huge get the attendance is 500 okay a lackluster it is a massive hit the venue was way too big and the uwf isn't really gonna do well outside of its market outside of the city yeah with kind of like the so-so reactions it's getting yeah um have no fear though herb abrams undeterred is out in florida doing heaps of cocaine well yeah yeah herb's in florida he yeah. i doubt he gives a shit about how big of a failure this yes. was i mean that's where you go to do that yeah, yeah. um the show um it was so poorly attended they essentially cut the lights mostly so that you couldn't see the fucking crowd at all it does a 0.1 buy rate on the pay-per-view which if you don't know uh, and i'm going to read this exact quote so i don't mess up exactly how this is 
Earlier reports for wrestling pay-per-view business was only reported by the buy rate, which represents a percentage of the total pay-per-view universe who bought this pay-per-view. 0.1% of people bought this fucking pay-per-view, which means the attendance was shit, the buy rate was shit, they made negative money on this. Yeah, yeah. By, by a considerable yeah. margin. Yes. Yes. You, you gotta figure that, yep. Uh, huge, massive financial loss, and all Herb can do is go spend all of his money on cocaine and hookers. Uh, which brings me to the next real big part about Herb, is money. Now, I said that Herb had some investors, and Herb had a little bit of money on his own. So surely he's he's kind of doing this, um, you know, at a like almost like like counting your books and looking at it and seeing kind of where the money's going coming from. Um, the problem um, with this is that Herb isn't paying people. No, yeah, no, he's not. <laughs> um, that could be a problem, yeah. So there's a big issue in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina, where essentially the TV crew that gets there for that show, they're like, hey, we need some money before we're going to do anything. Um, and Herb's like, oh, I'll, I'll pay you later. I don't give a fuck. And it comes closer to showtime. And the crew is like, look, if you don't pay us, we're leaving right the fuck now. We don't think you have the money. You're, you're stalling on paying us. And Herb's like, no, 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 it's cool. Like, we'll, go, we'll go to my office in the back and we'll, we'll call up my bank. They'll tell you my bank account like status. And I promise you I'll get you a check after that. So they go in and they call Herb's bank. And Herb's like, hey, like, I want to check my balance, like, verify the funds in my account. And they're like, oh, you've got millions of dollars in this account. And he's like, all right, cool, thanks. Just wanted to make sure I'm still a millionaire. And, like, hangs up and it's cool. And cuts a check for the, the TV crew and, and they're well off and good. The problem, as we'll, uh, we'll come to learn, is Herb Abrams has two bank accounts. Okay. He has... One bank account, which does legitimately have millions of dollars, and he has a second bank account, which has no money in it. Herb would routinely write checks for the workers, for staff, for buildings, on the account that has no fucking money. <laughs> yep. So, the at what point does the bank start calling bullshit here? It's it's the nineties. You can get away with with whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> um. The TV crew, though, learns about this um, and threatened to kill Herb by throwing him off the fifth floor <laughs> of the arena they were at. Yeah. Well, before yeah, he finally cut them a real check. Fair enough, I guess. Uh, uh, Honky Tonk Man, a uh, famous wrestler uh, from the 80s and 90s, would also go on to say, like, yeah, Herb would pay money out of, like, the main account to, like, the big people, like Bruno Sammartino and, like, Andre and, like, his, like, main workers, like, Steve Williams, all those guys. And anyone he didn't give a shit about or, like, the lower card, he would just pay them out of the fake account. Yeah. <laughs> um, to the point where Honky Talk Man went to, like, the uh, State Athletic Commission in New York and was like, I'm going to sue you and shut all of this shit down if you don't fucking pay me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and eventually, uh, at one point, there was an event manager... That was like, hey, I don't want your fucking checks. I want cash. Word was going around that Herb was throwing out dodgy checks, and people started to get aware of this, and they were like, nope, do not do that. I mean, after it happens to yes. you once, yeah. I, I, how many more times can you really can yeah. you put up with that? And just to kind of go on to this, um, 
by the end of his uh, life, at the end of his like wrestling like professionalism, uh, he had prior arrests in five states, mostly for skipping town without paying and running out of like town after shows immediately finished. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. So what ends up happening is Herb is dodging people for money, owes people a fuckload of money, and is doing cocaine. Yep. Which that's is... A very, that's a very 80s to 90s story, yep. Which, as it turns out, is the exact recipe for paranoia. Yep. So Herb is, like, paranoid the fuck out. He doesn't trust anyone. He's, like, ripping apart all of his hotels for, like, mics and cameras and just doesn't trust anybody. But he's still doing uh, hookers, and uh, what ends up happening is he uh, gets a, gets a, a nice woman of the evening and um, brings uh, her back to the hotel. And uh, had his paranoia been a little bit higher, he would have probably caught this. Uh, but when the prostitute was done, uh, she demanded her payment, as uh, a lady of the night is one to do. Yes, and sure. Herb tries to write her a check. No, no, no. no. For, okay, her, 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 look, her. You, you, I, I, I understand that no. he was probably going to one of the more upscale escort services, but I think it's fairly uncommon that those type of people allow you to pay with a check. There is no universe in which that is a good <laughs> idea. I mean, it can go wrong in several different ways, but it, it will never work out well. At this point, the lovely prostitute's pimp breaks down the door yep. <laughs> and chases Herb out of the hotel. Herb naked in cowboy boots, running down the street, calling other wrestlers for help while just like naked and afraid and alone paranoid. That's Herb. Yeah, that's Herb. Um, so <laughs> ba -da -ba -ba -da -ba. the U the U the UWF is on really hard times. And Herb is like, look, I've got one more shot at this shit. Uh, the WWF just ran WrestleMania in Vegas, and it was huge and massive, and it really kind of opened up opportunities. I'm going to run Vegas. Yeah. So, so 1994. This, this guy, Herb Abrams, is living the most insane lifestyle you've ever heard, and finally says, you know what? It's time to go for broke. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is four years into this experiment with the UWF, running inconsistent shows and drawing no more than, like, 500 people a show. Um. And he runs the Blackjack Brawl in Las Vegas, the MGM Grand, the biggest venues are ever going to run, betting it all in Vegas on his baby. Huge, 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 huge opportunity. Uh, the max capacity for the MGM Grand is about 17,000 people. Yep. Limitless possibility. He's telling all of his wrestlers... He's he's got a penthouse. He brings Cactus Jack up to his penthouse the night before. They're overlooking the entire strip in Vegas, and he's like, "This is it. We're fucking doing this, man. This is gonna be great." There are six hundred people in attendance. Yeah, <laughs> not good. Yes. Nope. Not Herb good. Abrams, fully coked out, uh, <clears throat> reportedly going multiple times to the bathroom to do more coke. At one point, he grabs the microphone forward like the PA in the arena and this is what he yells let's hear it for the Jews see now if Herb had not himself been Jewish that would have been much worse <laughs> but <clears throat> still not good yeah. and I'm so, sure I'm sure any Jewish person in attendance was probably aghast not wanting to <laughs> claim this man <laughs> 
Um, so the show does horribly, and it pretty much tanks any any chance for the UWF to do anything good. And the UWF kind of peters out, and Herb kind of takes a break. Uh, but before we go to kind of like the final final nail in the coffin, I do want to take a brief moment to talk about the championships and the title lineage that was in the UWF, because it's honestly fucking fascinating. So, um, the main title throughout the entirety, the entire history of the UWF was the television title. And while you think that's a good opportunity to promote your company and to really establish new stars, this title was established entirely as a fuck you to Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, to make that any more clear, on the side of each of the straps, it said UWF. However, when you fold in the belt uh, straps on the side and you hold it as the faceplate itself, the letters fuck, I'm sorry, the letters FU are just fully on display right next to the title. And the belt was literally a fuck you to Vince McMahon. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, but Herb also had a really uh, bad problem of establishing titles and then just doing fucking nothing with them. Um, the uh, UWF world title was won by Dr. Death Steve Williams in 1994 and was defended zero times and immediately abolished because yep. they ran no more shows afterwards. Uh, well, the he's, then he's still the ranking world champion. Cody, I know you're less versed in wrestling um, compared to me and especially to Jack John, but I will let you in on this. That's not good booking. I don't know if you no. caught on. That, yeah. that's, that's not gonna, yeah. That's not bringing in any viewers. That's zero yeah. buys no. right there. Um, two other titles that I think are definitely of note. Uh, the UWF Israeli title was won in New York. It was won by Joshua Ben Guyan. Uh, it was won in May of 1991. The title was dissolved in November of 91. And right on. this is the literal title of this uh, championship. It is the UWF Midget title. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Would you like to know the name of the wrestler who won it? I'm sure you're going to tell me. Little Tokyo. Of course. I cannot oh, even. Of course it was. I cannot even imagine how offensive this gimmick is. <laughs> that title was won. In 1994, and the promotion ran its last uh, show in 1994. They had like seven different titles that they ran for just one show, and it meant nothing. Um, though I mentioned earlier that um, we were going to have somebody who kind of um, was prominent. You mentioned Brian and Vinny. I don't have Brian and Vinny's response, but I do have the next best thing. I have wrestling journalists. Favorite son, Dave Meltzer. Yeah, I was wondering if Meltzer was going to... Here's the thing with Dave Meltzer. Dave <laughs> Dave is a brilliant guy with a yes. ton of connections to the wrestling business, has maybe the driest sense of humor of any human being on the face of the planet. <laughs> and so none of... like Everything involved with Herb Abrams and the UWF is like funny in an abstract kind of dark way. This yeah. is not something that's going to register with, with, yeah. with Dave. Dave Meltzer is very famously a, a wrestling savant yes. and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he does this thing. It's called the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And it's basically a catch-all of like wrestling news and history. And Dave Meltzer, at his best, is a wrestling historian. Yeah, and he's uh, really good at it. Really yes. good at that. So what that means is Dave 
Meltzer has been listening to a lot of shit about wrestling for a very long time. And in The Observer, wrote about the UWF quite a bit. Um, And he does a thing, essentially, where um, he wrote in uh, the end of 1990, in what's called the uh, 1990 Wrestling Observer Yearbook, he wrote that the year 1991 will be interesting to follow. Will Herb Abrams, who has become a major enemy of Vince McMahon, become a factor, or will they fade away? Um... As it turns out, they would just kind of meander for a couple years. But also, what the Observer um, does is it does essentially a fan voting uh, for, like, superlatives at the end of the year. Yes. Uh, It's mostly in kayfabe, which means it's mostly in the wrestling story uh, general idea. But also, it's just fan voting. And UWF and Herb Abrams got some votes for a couple years. Um, In 1990... Most obnoxious, uh, fourth place goes to Herb Abrams. Worst television fourth show place, huh? uh, over all of wrestling ever in that year. Worst television uh, show, fourth place goes to UWF. And this is like a small, like almost like an indie fed. So like what would be the equivalent of like a promotion in St. Louis ranking high kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, worst television announcer, first place goes to Herb Abrams. Yeah. <laughs> In one year's time, 1991, most obnoxious, worst television show, and worst promotion of the year, your boy Herb and the UWF <laughs> first placed in all honors. You swept it. Yes. Uh, in 1991, uh, Dave Meltzer is also starting to write about Herb Abrams bouncing checks uh, and noting the famous Honky Man, uh, Honky Tonk Man story uh, and basically just being like, yeah, um, people don't trust Herb anymore. He writes again in August of that year that bill collectors are after Herb. Uh, in 1992, more first place awards good to our boy, boy Herb. Most obnoxious, worst promotion. But this time, he gets a bump. Uh, worst television announcer, he only gets second. Hey, there we go. Who was first? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I believe it was Gorilla Monsoon that year enough. Uh, oh, but again, it, it's all bad. in kayfabe and fan voting. <clears throat> And Gorilla Monsoon was the heel, like... Oh, I see. Like, righteous dick announcer. Yeah, because so, usually Gorilla Monsoon yeah. was, like, beloved, so that, right. that makes some sense. Right, yeah. So that's, again, like, the, the Wrestling Observer Awards are always in kayfabe. Like, Hulk Hogan won Best Babyface, like, four years in a row. Right. Um, And then, uh, in 1994, Worst Wrestling Show goes to the Blackjack Brawl. First place absolutely across the board. Yep. <laughs> um... Herb Abrams does not take kindly to this. And names a jobber, Davey Meltzer. (laughs) The most thinly veiled shade of all time. (laughs) So all this happens and the wrestling world, like 94 to 96, massive boom for the WWF and the WCW. The wrestling world just kind of passes Herb by and Herb goes clean and is like, you know what? I'm, I'm leaving L.A. I'm going to go back to New York. And I'm just going to kind of restart my life and figure out everything for myself. But wrestling is kind of on the back burner. But the UWF is kind of in limbo. And Herb goes clean. And everything goes happily ever after. Until July of 96. Yeah. Halfway into the year where he goes clean. And the police are called to Herb's building in New York. Uh, and while it's not known 100% what happened, by the approximation of a bunch of different sources, we can mostly tell what happened. Uh, the police were called for an emotionally disturbed person in the building, 
And when the police got there, they were greeted with a sight for the ages. Herb was there. Naked. Wearing cowboy boots. Again? Covered in Vaseline and cocaine. Yep. Herb is brandishing a baseball bat. And he's chasing two hookers. (laughs) That's not a thing you want to do. (laughs) That's Herb. Herb is then arrested. And sometime while in police custody, unfortunately, Herb has a massive fucking heart attack and dies. Not the way you want to go. <clears throat> and I'll say that but, uh, in the Dark Side of the Ring episode, one of the really darkly amusing things is everyone telling their variation of how they heard that story. Yes. Is there are some, <laughs> there, a lot of the key facts are the same, but <clears throat> there are some variations of it, yes. including that the cops just beat his ass until he died <laughs> was one of the versions. Right. But, but there's also no police report from what I could find. I tried looking up like, anything more about his past as well. I could only read that he was arrested, but didn't really find much. Um, but that is the story of Herb Abrams. People in in the dark side of the ring love to talk glowingly about Herb, but everything that I found that was a source of the time just talked about that he was a sleazeball and wasn't paying people. And even famously in Mick Foley's book, Mick talks glowingly about him during the interview uh, for Dark Side of the Ring, but in his own book... It's just like, yeah, that dude didn't pay me, and he's kind of shit. Yeah. So yeah, there there are two sides to everyone, I guess. Right. Which is funny because Mick Foley, famous for having the three faces of Foley, mm. but that is the story of the coke out cowboy Herb Abrams. Which brings me to my final question for you guys: um, It's your time to die. You get to go out however you want. How the fuck are you going out? So this is something we've had similar questions to this where it was within a certain set of parameters like mine yes. last last week. But since we're just freeform dying this week. Yes. You can do it however you want. You can as wacky as you want. Herb was coked out chasing hookers with a baseball bat. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a small bomb implanted in my stomach. And then I'm going to gather all of my friends and family for a nice big happy dinner at uh you know, wherever we, we decide we want to eat. Going to sit there. A good time is going to be had by all. I'm going to eat whatever I want, as much as I want. And then at the end of dessert, when we're all just kind of sitting there, I'm going to go, oh, I'm so full. I think if I eat another bite, I'm going to explode. Oh, and then about five seconds later, I'm going to take another small bite of my dessert, hit the <laughs> detonator, and blow the fuck up. You're just like eating a tiramisu. This tiramisu is to die for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to make it a bit. Yeah, one last bit. Similar, like, when I was in high school, I used to, like, and, you know, this really isn't that funny when I I look back on it. But, (laughs) you know, you'd be, like, in, like, a really boring class. You look over your friend and two would shake your heads to do, like, the, you know, the the finger guns to the head. Like, you're like, (laughs) I always joke, like, what if that happened? And the other guy was just like, huh, yeah, pulls out an actual gun and just fucking. (laughs) Um but what I'm doing um, is spiritually a little bit similar to the way Herb went out. I would like to just fall into a vat um, at a, a very nice craft brewery. One of my three favorites here. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter which one. <laughs> and just, uh, you know, just let myself be consumed. Um, now, the downside is that's going to ruin the batch. But let yeah. myself just be consumed by uh, a sea of, of, uh, of my favorite beer. Be like the Elisa Lamb of beer. 
which is a very dark joke, by the <laughs> way. That is a subject we might get to at some point on this show, because it is fascinating. Yes. Yeah, I just seeing the headline, St. Louis man attempts suicide in beer vat, <laughs> accidentally drinks entire vat. <laughs> <laughs> like the end of that Family Guy episode where Peter falls in the vat of lard. Yes. <laughs> you're just, you're you're alive still, but you look like uh, Violet Beauregard after you <laughs> blew up. Like, oh no, I, I'll just have to try again. <laughs> worst comes to worst, I'll just keep doing that until I die of natural causes. I was going to say, it won't take long, I don't think. Great answers, both of you. I think I I want I want to be at a concert. I want to be crowd surfing. And I want the, like how you kind of get like tossed and thrown by the crowd. I want to get like tossed so high by the crowd that I just come back down on my neck and it just ruined the entire concert for everybody. A similar thing happened at a Lamb of God show yeah. a but couple like, years back. But like, I go like 50 feet. Like, I have a spectacle for like four <laughs> seconds, and then I'm ruining the party. Just enough time for everyone to realize what's happening yes. and what's going to happen when like, you hit the ground. Oh, look, they've got a Goodyear blimp. Oh, fuck, that's a guy. <laughs> oh, he's gonna splat. Yep. <laughs> Cody, what was the show we went to at Pops Nightclub? Where there were a couple guys, I think there were guys that you knew, like they're maybe from a nearby town. I didn't know them, but there are guys you're a little familiar with, and they're like huge bodybuilder guys. And yeah. um, there, there was a, um, a a smaller woman who wanted to uh, crowd surf to the front, and they asked just that, which seems like a good idea. <laughs> but like she was like really light, and they didn't know their own strength, and so when they went to push her up, she just went like flying all the way over the barricade, <laughs> oh, no. and they got that in trouble. Was... That was uh, August Burns Red doing oh. a headliner there. Yeah, you're going to see Jim Bros in an August they, Burns Red and those, show. Those guys are just, they're like mortified. They're like, oh shit. <laughs> they're just trying to I like push I will tell you, yeah. the furthest I have ever managed to launch a crowd surfer was Alex and I went to go see uh, Attack Attack. Oh God. At uh, the castle in Bloomington. Yeah, which is a venue where there's no barricade. So yeah. Things so get pretty this little wild, little tiny, really loud, annoying girl had landed straight on my head like three times. Like she kept continuously crowd surfing and she'd always go back to the same spot. So eventually I got tired of it and we were real close to the front. Yeah. But eventually she landed on my shoulder again. I picked I like picked her up like a shot put and <laughs> she landed on the stage. Yeah. So. <laughs> That that was a good. It wasn't very far, but it was like six, seven feet. So yeah. that's that's pretty good for chucking a whole human. You you would have made it to the divisional round in college if you were shot putting. <laughs> <clears throat> pretty good toss. Yeah. All right, and so that brings us to the end of a very wacky episode of Here's a Guy. <laughs> uh, I had a great time. Hopefully, you all did as well. So uh, to bring this thing to a conclusion, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me over on Twitter. I am at Son of Gravy for twenty sixty nine. Uh, also, you can find me every week, or at least as often as we possibly can, right here on uh, Here's a Guy on Spotify and Stitcher, and now Google Podcasts. All righty, Jack John. How about you? Where can the people find you? People can find me on Spotify on my other podcast, Belchcast, where I talk about nerd shit and drink beer with our buddy Pookie. You can also find me on Twitch at Jack John Plays Games, and this. Sunday, 
the return of Here's an Adventure on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Here's an Adventure. It's our D&D group where the three of us, Pookie and his lovely wife, Kelsey, uh, just go on a magical romp. And if you like pro wrestling, I play the biggest doofus pro wrestler <laughs> of all time. Cody yeah. eloquently put it, I play Hercule, a.k.a. Mr. Satan. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Episode... <laughs> Yeah, the, the the first session was a blast. I'm sure it's only going to get even better from here on out as well. So you know, sure I actually just a few, like an hour before we started recording, got uh, a text from Pookie uh, asking a question about my character and saying that he plans to, to use some stuff from my backstory in the next campaign or two. So I'm very excited. Right on. All right. Well, and yeah, as we said, you can find me there as well at that date and time and uh, whenever else we do it. Um, additionally, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. Follow the podcast a- account at uh, Here's a Guy Pod. We have a Gmail account, Here's Mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you like. If we like it enough, we'll read it on air. Um, also, keep Googling weird things um, yes. that, that, that reveal links because I, I, am, I am highly amused by them. Um, that has nothing to do with the show, but just for my personal amusement, if nothing else. Um, All right. Well, uh, so glad to have you here with us. We hope you join us again next week. And so let's uh, let's bring an end to this episode of Here's a Guy. And to do so, as we always do, Cody, do you have a tagline? Uh, Yes, I do. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being here. We'll be back next week. And to take us home, Cody, hit us with that tagline. I am so full. If I eat one more bite, I'm going to explode. Oh, shit!